0: Kind of interested in the mini review, except I am extremely, I am extremely not interested in your mini review because I don't want to know.
1: Oh, my iPhone Mini?
2: Hmm. I don't want to know. So let me tell you. I don't want to know. I stopped the I stopped the the show rundown right after we got up to that thing. But Marco can feel free to talk
0: about it if he wants during the topic section, which we'll get to <laughs> shortly. <laughs> Fast resolution switching on M1 Max. Gokin Avkarogulari uh, writes, and I believe this individual is an Apple engineer, uh, writes, I was waiting for this. Our display pipes are many years ahead of the industry, and this is just one example of that. From contrast to accessibility to color management, many teams at Apple, including my display driver team, put so much effort to it, glad to see it makes a difference uh yeah it does make a difference because i (laughs) have you seen it yet well so i finally saw a demo and somebody tweeted this uh, and we'll put a link in the show notes and they have i guess an older an old and busted macbook pro on one side
1: they have the current top of the line macbook pro the 16 inch yes
0: (laughs) yep and then which is obviously old and busted Yes. and then the on the left hand side they have a brand new macbook pro which is the 13 inch and you know when Marco, I think it was Marco, or maybe it was John. I, yeah, well, it was it's me. always John. No, no, it's always John. That's the rules. Remember. <laughs> and so um, when John said, when when John Marco uh, said, when John Ralfio said that uh, the resolution switching was instant, uh, I I conceptually understood the words that were being said but seeing it visually is a whole nother thing. Like this tweet, it's so ridiculous how fast this is. I just cannot believe my eyes.
1: It's one of those things that like you know, with computers, we've we've used computers for a long time now, and it's just one of those things that always has taken a few seconds. Like it just it's a thing that when you change the resolution of your screen, It it goes blank for a few seconds and things kind of like pop in kind of ungracefully. And, you know, a few seconds later, everything is kind of basically where it should be. And when you go from something that takes a few seconds and you see the transition and it's ungraceful like that to something that literally is like instant, (laughs) you just like, boom, it's just like click, 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 boom. It's it's shocking like it. And it's again, this is not something that they had to optimize. This is not something that needed to be done. But it's just so damn delightful to see it, and it's something that you don't see very often in computing, where something that previously used to take a good amount of time all of a sudden takes no time. And again, like this, most people don't change resolutions that often, although many people do plug in monitors and unplug monitors frequently, and uh, from what I hear, I haven't been able to test this yet, but from what I hear, uh, that is similarly fast now, so... I am just so happy that this kind of stuff is being worked on and that we can still have things in modern computing that make us go, whoa, like that really surprise us because that doesn't happen that often anymore because stuff is really good pretty much everywhere. So like, you know, to to get one of those whoa moments is rare and it's just so incredibly delightful when you see one. And this is one of those times.
2: I guess one of the benefits of, of the iOS project, you know, uh, having started for the phone and of course they started from Mac OS 10, but they had to rip like tons of stuff out to just get it to fit into the phone and to get it to be fast enough on that very slow phone hardware. And that sort of gave them a chance to tear everything down to the studs, so to speak, and to build back up from there without concern for legacy because they totally controlled the hardware and the iOS didn't need to run anywhere except for on, you know, this phone hardware. And so that's the perfect opportunity over the course of the next 10, 15 years to reconsider things like the display driver stack, which like Marco said, they weren't broken. There's nothing wrong with them. They worked fine. Like their their main job is to be reliable and, you know, do the things we want them to do. They supported retina. You could change resolution. You know, it, it, know, it, it, it did all the things that you would expect it to do, but... If you have the opportunity to sort of rebuild that for nothing, starting from very simple display driving on the original iPhone up till today, you can end up building a display driver system, especially with the move to Metal, not having to support OpenGL, not having to support other people's graphics drivers. If they control the hardware and the software stack, it's an opportunity to do something better. And I don't think there was huge pressure from the outside saying you really need to make resolution switching faster. I think it is just a <laughs> side effect of redoing the display driver stack to be high performance in all ways and one of the benefits you get basically for free for doing a good job is oh and guess what resolution change
0: that's lightning fast now too oh it's extremely extremely impressive and i'm only seeing it on video it's very cool and to your point marco uh, sylvain filto writes you mentioned how fast it's to change resolution it is exactly as fast plugging in an external display like the UltraFine 5k very cool stuff Uh, Tell me, John, about TensorFlow and Forks and M1 Max and so on.
2: So, you know, one of the things that Apple talked about in their presentation about the M1 Max, they showed the system on a chip, and we've talked about this in the past, how much of these system on chips is dedicated to machine learning stuff. Obviously, you know, the benefit that Apple touted to this, oh, we'll take our cruddy 720p camera and it will make those pictures look a little bit better. Although that may be the image signal processor and not the neural engine. But anyway, it's splitting hairs. The point is, there's hardware on the M1, just like there is on all of the iPhone and iPad system-on-a-chips that is dedicated to doing specific tasks very well. Um, and on the Mac, it's like, okay, that's great. The OS uses it for certain things. But otherwise, it's just sitting there not being used until someone updates their software for it. So this is an announcement that, uh, that Apple, I to think this is Apple's fork of TensorFlow, which is a machine learning thing of some stripe. Um, the new version optimized for the M1 base Macs uh, has seven times faster performance and, and how does it get seven <laughs> times faster performance it's not in this case because you know the m1 is faster in cpu than than any other mac but it's not seven times faster it's getting seven times faster because it's using the machine learning hardware that's on the chip the previous version didn't because there was none right on the intel chips there was nothing right and now it's using that machine learning stuff that's on there huge speed boost so this is the type of sort of non-linear increases you get for actually taking advantage of the hardware that they put on these system on chips for, you know, for phones, for iPads. And now the Mac has them too. And, you know, the sooner Mac developers pick up that, the better it's going to make their applications look. I think I'm, I i do not remember if what's the, what's the app that has like that super resolution plugin. Uh, is it pixel Yeah. Yeah. I think that one is also now taking advantage of the neural engine and stuff like it, it is. Yes. Yeah. So th- those are, and I, there was someone did a benchmark of those things. too, showing like it, You know, if you do it on the CPU, like it's still it's still faster because the CPU is faster. But if you don't do it on the CPU, but instead do it on dedicated hardware, it's a lot faster. So those things are great and probably more power efficient as well. So that's exciting. And not just like, oh, uh, we recompiled it for ARM Max. We didn't just recompile it. We wrote to use whatever new set of APIs targets the new hardware. That makes it way faster.
0: Yeah, that is extremely impressive. Then tell me about eight K rendering, if you please. I think I did my own, uh,
2: you know, uh, McGurk effect, uh, green needle, <laughs> iPhone, Fortnite, whatever thing in the last episode, uh, during the section where we were talking about, uh, various people's impressive benchmarks of the M1 base Macs. One of the examples was a, a 8k video render test. Uh, and the thing was that, you know, the, the M1 base Mac rendered it and, uh, and the it was competing with the Intel version and the Intel version couldn't do it without draining its battery. Right. And what was written in the notes and what I could swear I tried to say twice on the podcast was the percentage that the M1 base Mac, uh, depleted its battery. And I listened back to the show and I realized twice I said what sounded like the M1 Mac used 70% of its battery and the Intel Mac drained its battery before completing the task. But what I was trying to say was the M1 Mac depleted 17% of its oh battery. <laughs> two, two more than 15. The number after 16. So the M1 base Mac not only did it faster, but it depleted its only 17% of its battery, having 83% remaining. And the non-M1 base Mac, the Intel base Mac, could not complete the task on its on a single charge. So I just wanted to, to clarify... <laughs> I, that is bananas. my mouth said what sounded like seven zero, but it is not. The it was one seven. That is absolutely
0: bananas. I, I we're going to talk more about these new Macs, and I I don't I don't want to. I might quit the show because <laughs> I like I really like my MacBook Pro that I have from June of this year. It doesn't feel like. It's a 40-year-old computer, but the way everyone is talking <laughs> about this M1 Max, I feel like this is barely better than the 8088 I had in my bedroom when I was like 10 years old, when it was already, you know, a way too old computer. My word. All right. Tell me about running iOS apps with just the IPA files, please.
2: Yeah. So in, you know, we talked about this when Apple made the announcement that like if you have uh, an iPad or if you have an iPhone app... Um, you have a choice of whether you want that iPhone app to be uh, available for people to download on their Macs through the Mac, quote unquote Mac App Store, right? And you can say yes to opt in and no to opt out and every developer basically has to make this choice. Um, but what if you want to run an iPhone app but the developer of that iPhone app has decided not to make it available to Mac users? For example, Marco could have decided, oh, Overcast, I'm gonna make a Mac version so I don't want you downloading and using the iOS version. But he didn't, so you can get Overcast on your Mac, right? But another developer may not make that choice. Right? Well, many people through experimentation have determined if you can just use, I don't know what they're using, iTunes or whatever, whatever way you can get to download uh, the .ipa file onto your Mac. The .ipa file is, what does it stand for? I- iPhone package something
1: something it's a renamed zip file it's one of many file formats that is just zip
2: renamed <laughs> yeah anyway it's, it's basically how we package up ios applications for distribution probably
1: like, iphone app if I had yeah to guess. maybe
2: um, but anyway if you can get one of those as in a legit downloaded one from like the app store the real app store and you can like uh, you know get it through itunes but when itunes would download stuff you can do it in a local backup but anyway get a legit downloaded .ipa for your iphone applications lots of different ways to get that on your mac and double click it on an arm-based mac it'll run because it's it's not it's valid it's signed it's you know you have downloaded it through your apple id it will do the fair play check and everything will you know it's it's not like you're hacking anything if you can get that ipa which you can you can just run it on your mac apparently now it may be broken there may be a reason the developer chose not to distribute it on the mac and i'm not sure how sustainable this is and when apple will close this door but if there's some app that you want to you know use that you can't right now try it uh the person who wrote this into mac rumors uh, named amy said she's used this method to install netflix hulu youtube and spotify all of which at the time of writing were not available on the mac app store but you can get the ipas and you can run them on your mac that's very cool
0: by the way real time real time follow-up ios app store package so i in ios a in app store p in package. Mm, i don't know if you can dig that a stand for app store app store is two yeah, words mm. wikipedia says it so it must be true it's
2: like the iso
1: yeah
0: oh what does ISO stand for
1: it's something French but it's like the international standards <laughs> of organization it's I don't know oh no no yeah. I thought you
0: meant <laughs> I thought you meant the like CD-ROM archive oh,
1: and technically God, it's the same thing it is. it's the same <laughs> thing is it? It's the same, co- oh, yeah, they made I mean, it's, same yeah I mean it's a little bit of a walk to get there but yes
0: <laughs> wow well today I learned all right tell me about crossover so this was something that I was not aware of but apparently this is like a Well, I'm going to sell it short, but kind of like a white-labeled version of Wine. What is going on here? So for for those who are not familiar, Wine is a thing that I used to use when I told myself that running Linux full-time was a worthwhile endeavor. It wasn't.
1: We all had a Linux phase.
0: Yep. <laughs> Title. Uh, and so Wine, uh, last I rem- remember paying attention to it, was basically a shim on top of your local systems, like OS APIs, that acted like Windows APIs. So if you wanted to run an app that was built for Windows, it would start talking to Wine, W-I-N-E, which I think is a backronym for something.
1: Wine is not an emulator, I believe.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Um, So anyway, so it would talk to Wine, and Wine would kind of like translate these API calls into something that your system like mac Mac os or linux or what have you would understand and i guess crossover is a for pay uh like fancier version of wine that's presumably a lot less fiddly is that fair to say i'm not sure which one of you put this in the show notes so i'm reaching out to the two of you yeah
2: yeah that's basically what crossover is and one of the main uses of it has been to run windows-based games on your mac without having to boot into windows obviously on an intel-based mac you can use vmware or parallels to run a full windows os and then within that run games you can also reboot with boot camp to boot your intel based mac into windows and run your games there for best performance but crossover is like wine it's like what if i don't want to run a vm i don't want to run a full windows operating system. I sure i don't want to reboot my mac but i do want to run a windows game well like wine you can launch the windows game in the crossover environment and it will basically take all your win 32 calls or whatever and say okay well uh, you know th- this isn't Windows, but I understand what you're trying to do Windows application, so I will make the roughly equivalent set of mac OS or Unix calls to do the thing that you want and get the job done um so that's what crossover is. Where you're like well, that doesn't have any relevance on m one base max because m one base Macs you know they're they're not Intel right, and this is all about running Windows things, and Windows only runs on Intel except for the weird arm version the Microsoft won't license to anybody yet, but anyway. Uh, what if I want to run Windows games on my M1 Mac? You might think you're just SOL because you can't run pal- uh, parallel, you can't run you can't run Windows in parallels or VMware, and you can't reboot your ARM-based Mac into Windows yet. So what are you going to do? Oh, and by the way, as we know, like Big Sur doesn't uh, is, is 64-bit only, and there has never been a 32-bit processor in a Mac in, in ages, right? So how are you going to run? And most Windows games are still 32-bit. How are you going to run a 32-bit Windows game? Well, apparently with, through the magic of crossover. You're able to take a 32-bit Windows game written for Intel processors and run it on a 64-bit ARM uh Mac. has been through the magic of translation. So here's here's Jeremy White from uh, Crossover. I think he's one of his yeah, he works at the, the company that makes his code weavers. There's so much emulation going on under the, under the covers. Imagine a 32-bit Windows Intel binary running on a 32 to 62 bridge in wine slash crossover on top of macOS on an ARM CPU that is emulating x86 and it works. This is just so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and Brendan Shanks, one of the developers, says, Mac OS 10.15 removed 32-bit executable support, but added support for 64-bit apps to create 32-bit code segments. Crossover uses that on Intel, and Rosetta emulates it, which is how you can do it on the Apple Silicon. So Golly. I didn't know that, that you're able to, like, in a 64-bit app, create a 32-bit code segment and then apparently execute that. And so that, that ability on Intel CPUs plus Mac OS 10.15 and later is being correctly emulated by rosetta on arm and you would think okay well this is you know it's like one of those things where you run vmware inside vmware inside vmware it's cool and it's funny but that's silly it's not actually practical is it they show playing actual games like you get acceptable gaming performance on certain varieties of games it's not incredibly it's not as slow as you would think it would be it is actually viable for playing some type of games which is amazing (laughs) We are sponsored this week
1: by HelloFresh. HelloFresh offers convenient, easy, and stress-free meal kit delivery service. They have convenient no-contact delivery to your doorstep for easy home cooking with your family. HelloFresh's recipes are easy to follow with simple steps and pictures to guide you along the way. I've personally used HelloFresh before, and I love their recipe cards. They really are very easy to follow. They show you what things are supposed to look like at each step so you know, like, how small do I chop this thing? Or what does it look like when it's cooking? Like, you know all those things because they show you. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in about 30 minutes. And this comes at a great value. You can save up to 40% when you use HelloFresh versus shopping at the grocery store. And feeding your whole family has never been easier with new lower prices for larger box sizes. So more servings means more savings. And this is a huge variety of delicious, nutritious food. HelloFresh delivers fresh, high-quality, pre-portioned ingredients. You can make meals that are delicious and nutritious. Over 90% of their ingredients are sourced directly from growers to ensure peak flavor and ripeness. And they offer more than 20 chef-crafted, delicious options every week to help you break out of your recipe rut, try new things, and make any night feel special. There's something everybody will enjoy, including 20-minute meals, low-calorie plans, vegetarian meals, kid-approved recipes, and so much more. And HelloFresh is flexible for your lifestyle. You can easily change your delivery days or meal plan preferences, skip a week whenever you need to, right in their easy-to-use app. And you can keep your fridge stocked by adding extra meals or additional proteins, quick meals like breakfast on the go or their 10-minute lunches and even desserts to satisfy that sweet tooth. Go to HelloFresh.com slash ATP90 and use code ATP90 to get $90 off, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash ATP90, code ATP90 to get $90 off, including free shipping. Thank you so much to HelloFresh for sponsoring our show.
0: This is not something that I've dabbled with yet, but I know a lot of people are are very happy about this forthcoming change. iOS 14.3 Beta 2 no longer opens the Shortcuts app when launching an app from a custom icon. So to to back up a half step here, uh, using Shortcuts, you can put a quote-unquote app on your home screen with with a custom icon that the shortcut, all it does is launch the app. And so people are using this to be able to you know, make their own icons for existing apps, both system and otherwise. And this is, you know, part of the customization craze that, you know, our dear friend uh, David Smith has been riding with WidgetSmith, which you should check out if you haven't already. So the way it used to work was, or the way officially it still works, is that when you launch one of these shortcuts from your home screen... It will launch the shortcuts app for a flash and then punch you into this actual thing you're trying to do and apparently in beta two that's no longer the case it will just immediately open the app and I believe it does uh, one of the little banners at the top of the screen as well but it's there's no like flash into the shortcuts app first which is excellent
2: this makes me think about sort of the, the corporate mechanics inside Apple right uh, because we know that you know where do shortcuts come from it was the workflow team that Apple sort of aqua hired and then they made shortcuts for ios okay and you know especially given how you know it wasn't very long ago when these were independent developers now they're inside apple they see everyone doing this customization craze where they want to make custom icons for the applications and they do it by making a trivial shortcut and all it does is launch the apps and it goes through the shortcut cut app and people use it anyway just because it's a cool thing to do but it would be better if it didn't you know that workflow development development team sees that and says oh Well, we can do that. Like we work inside Apple now and we, you know, we're the the shortcuts team. It's pretty easy for us to say, hey, if you make a shortcut that just launches an app, don't bounce through shortcuts, just launch the app directly. And so they implemented and do it. And this is a beta, so it hasn't shipped yet. But, you know, I can see that sort of feedback loop being simple and closed, right? But on the other hand, there are larger strategic implications of allowing customers this level of customization, which based on our discussion... Of you know the whole widgets thing back when we were talking about iOS fourteen, we're all in favor of and we think it's a great idea to let people customize in this way. But oh, I have felt like that Apple accidentally backed into this by accidentally providing a critical mass of customizability combined with you know apps like uh, underscores Widgetsmith that a lot suddenly allowed people to express themselves in a holistic way and theme their you know home screens. It doesn't look like anything that Apple planned and pitched and promoted. They just kind of got it accidentally. So, this type of small change where the shortcuts team does an obvious thing based on customer feedback hey, this is the thing people want and we can do it pretty easily. So, here you go is kind of a tacit endorsement of this theming craze without, I feel like, buy in from the larger org, because the real full buy in way to do it would be oh, now on the settings screen there's a place where you can customize every app icon or now on the settings screen there's a themes section where you can download theme packs from the theme store like we know how a full-throated sort of endorsement of this thing would look from apple right i mean how they did the iMessage store no one uses that like a theme store or a watch face store like we like that's sort of the whole apple buys in this is the shortcut team is filled with developers who want to do the right thing and so they have So I'm still watching this space to see how much Apple is willing to embrace theming and customization on iOS. Uh, Because I can tell you on the Mac, aside from uh, free your accent colors, Apple has not fully endorsed theming and has mostly accidentally shut down every application on macOS 10 anyway that has allowed some kind of theming from candy bar to shapeshifter to all that other good stuff not that they had it out for them it's just that they never considered that an important use case and they slowly semi-accidentally semi on purpose broke it all until uh, until where we are today where no one really tries to do anything but ios is going the other direction so i'm still watching this space
0: yeah, didn't wasn't there? I don't know, like a, an iOS release or two ago, a way that I think shortcuts could set like your lock screen or your 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 wallpaper on your home screen, and then that like got pulled, and then it came back, and then it got pulled, and from the outside, it almost smelled like there was a cat and mouse going on <laughs> between uh, the the you know former uh, uh, the shortcuts team. What, what, did you, what was it called? Workflow. God, I workflow. just had a total blank. Sorry. The former workflow now shortcuts team and the rest of the iOS. team team at Apple where, you know, shortcut slash workflow was like, oh, yeah, we can totally make it so you can change your home screen and your lock screen. And then the rest of the iOS group was like, uh, 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 huh? What? No, 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 no. And it just went back and forth a few times. I think it actually just came back recently. But yeah, it is interesting to see a group of developers that, that very much believed in the, you know, go fast and break things mantra and how they're dealing with the large, you know, aircraft carrier that is Apple.
2: I don't think they're going fast and breaking things. They're just being as responsive as they would be as an independent company, which is more responsive than Apple is. And by the way, when mm-hmm. we're talking about Teams being responsive, I will once again make my pitch to anybody Apple who is listening. There is a level of customization that iOS has allowed basically from day one, which is the ability to rearrange icons in your home screen. That interface continues to be a thorn in the world's side. please. Please, somebody, because third-party developers can't do this. If you let third-party developers do it, it would be solved already. But you haven't. You're keeping it for yourself. So if you're going to keep it for yourself, please give us a way to rearrange home screens and icons in a way that does not drive us all up a wall and make us tear our hair out because the current system is really, really bad, and my home screens are a mess, and I want to fix them, and I can't. (laughs) Please, please, Apple, do something about
0: this.
1: Yeah, I I would like Apple to treat the home screen arrangement as more valuable data than they appear to treat it right now <laughs> because right now i like so you know when i was going through you know covid last two weeks i decided i should add to my home screen a widget that can display the uh blood oxygen level from my apple watch whatever the last measurement was i want that on a widget on my home screen so i can see it all the time
0: well that's a good idea
1: yeah thanks i i thought so too and I did eventually find something that could do that. Um, let me plug it real fast. It's called Health View, and it just displays like you know anything from Health Kit in a widget. And when I fir- like, I don't know anybody, myself included, who has placed a widget on their home screen successfully without totally screwing up a million other icons in the process.
2: Yeah, it's like setting off a bomb on your home screen. Yeah, and there is <laughs> not only
1: is there no undo. But even if you just take whatever widget you had just bombed your home screen with and just move it to a different page, the icons don't go back to the way they were. They go back to some other like shuffled random order. It's really
2: weird. It's literally like a bomb. It's like if you if you set off a bomb and then you then you remove the bomb, the bricks don't go back to where they are. They stay scattered to the four winds. Yeah, and and, like they just collapse back inward (laughs) in random
1: orders. Like I, it's very strange. Like I had I had to look back at a screenshot that I had taken of my home screen a few days earlier for other reasons. Like I had to look for that to know how did I have these icons arranged again.
2: (laughs) That's the main reason I take screenshots of my home screen. By the way, sometimes. People say oh show us your old home screen. The only reason I have those is because I always take one if I'm smart before I start trying to rearrange because I know it's going to be chaos. Yeah,
1: and it just it seems like it seems like maybe maybe whoever works on springboard at Apple just by the nature of working on springboard maybe they have such constant like you know disturbances in their icon arrangements as part of that job that they just don't realize how incredibly disruptive it is when it happens to most people because like I, you know i'll keep the same icon arrangement for a lot of stuff like on my main home screen i'll keep it for years and when that gets disrupted it like you you can't find things where they are because you you're so used to the spatial memory of where things were and so like it, it's such a incredibly disruptive thing to have that be, be messed up in a big way and i don't know how you can possibly install a widget on any home screen and not do that it, it's I, I do hope that Apple realizes how how bad this is sometime and, and actually improves that.
2: And to be clear, the app library stuff and being able to hide home screens, those are all good features. We're not saying get rid of those. You know, you have to have those too. And also for the home screens that you want to actually have, you have to be able to arrange things in a sane way. I've been trying new techniques because I've, I've been trying to work on my later home screens because like I said, my home screens are a mess. And no technique I can find can get me sanity like i've tr- been i think the behavior has <laughs> changed slightly recently because what i've been doing my main technique that i've used is the grab and hold and then flick with the other finger to, to scroll so it's like a two-handed technique rather than pushing to the screen edge which is you know you'll it's madness you'll never be successful that way right so you just grab one or more icons and then you swipe with the other finger quickly the problem is no matter how fast you swipe momentarily ios thinks you're on one of the other home screens and when you're on there momentarily it tends to eject other icons like subatomic particles in a particle collider. It ejects them <laughs> outwards, right? And you're like, but I'm just passing through. I'm on my way to page five, right? I don't I didn't want to disturb anything on page three, but I have. And the new thing that I think in the last two OS or iOS versions or whatever is I'll get to page five. I'll find the place for it that i you know, it's like preparing the way with my fridge again. I'll, I will have prepared a spot for it. I'll get to page five. I'll land the icons if I'm lucky. Sometimes I'm unlucky and they just go somewhere and have no idea where. Um, but then I'll go back and I'll swipe backwards and I'll see that icons were ejected and somehow spawned a new page just for the ejected icons <laughs> between what was page three and page four. And now there'll be a page with one or two icons on it. I'm like, where did you come from? And i look to either side and sometimes either side is filled with icons. I'm like, how is that possible? Where did these come from? And how did you make a new page for yourself? I was just passing through and I thought I successfully landed those two icons on page five, but now I have an extra page with two icons on it. It's the worst. It's getting worse. Like it's, before it used to be, oh, well, I keep, you know, I keep going from one edge to the other and it squirms out of the way and yada yada, but at least it was somewhat sensible. Like there was just a big linear list, of like a big snake and you would just push things. But now they spawn their own pages. This like, we need an interface to do this that is not that a is undoable slash like sort of rearrange and then commit right and then b provides a richer interface than our fingers on the phone screen if we could do it on a mac if we could do it on an ipad or if we could do it on a phone in miniaturized size in a sort of trial mode where you're just in this app that lets you rearrange home screens and only when you get it all the way you want it do you say commit or you just bail and say well never mind or you leave it in progress or whatever but like like i said if this if there was an api for doing this which i'm not i'm not really asking for this is a tall order for the api all i'm saying if there was a third-party api for home screen management this problem will be solved a hundred ways because it's you know third parties would make money doing it because there's a need and people want to do it and we just is this proof that there's an appetite for this type of thing but there's no third-party api fine it makes sense it should be a first-party thing apple just do a better job at it that's all we're asking for
0: you know, it's funny because uh, just a couple of days ago, I was talking to my dad and he said, you know, can you still arrange your home screen in iTunes? And I was like, well, it's not iTunes anymore. It's music. And no, I don't think so. And you can't do it in the Finder either, I don't believe. In fact, I don't think that's been a thing for years. You
2: can do it in the Apple Configurator too, supposedly. I've tried took a run at it a few times and it, I this I think there's a way to do it. But I think you kind of have to pretend that you're managing a bunch of people's corporate iOS devices or something like it's. It was scary enough that I bailed out every time I took a run at it, but before people send us this feedback, apparently there is a way to use Apple Configurator 2 to somehow do this, and Apple Configurator 2 is an app that you run on your Mac, so maybe there's a better, easier way to do it, but iTunes was the best solution we've had so far, and even that wasn't great. Uh, because you would think that oh you've got a mac screen and this huge you know huge itunes window surely you can make this easy with a mouse cursor or whatever it was still weird and hard it wasn't a good interface if again if this was a third-party api there would the third part many people would make third-party apps and the good ones would float to the top instead we just got the one implementation on itunes which was better than nothing like that's why your dad was asking for it because it was better than just trying to do it with your finger but it still wasn't good
0: and finally one very quick piece follow up uh, I was lamenting last week about uh, GitHub's relationship with uh, the US immigration and customs enforcement and it was pointed out to me that uh, that w- isn't a direct relationship so what happened was uh, GitHub uh, w- or I'm sorry a third party reseller sold an on premises GitHub enterprise server like instance contract whatever on behalf of github but github like didn't seek this business themselves there is a third party in between the two it doesn't make me feel that much better about it personally but you may have a different interpretation of it and i will put a link it's
1: like money laundering for morals
0: (laughs) so i'll put a link in the show notes to their response about this which was from uh, late last actually almost exactly uh, a year ago so you can check it out if you're interested
1: Also, I wanted to give a quick shout-out to this wonderful... So, okay, earlier this evening, uh, I had discovered throughout all of my new device setups that for the first time ever, I had a sync problem with my contacts database. For the first time ever... I all of a sudden had duplicates of every single contact in my address book. Woof. And I had heard Merlin talk about this before and Back to Work, so I knew there were like apps out there that would help you you know, find and clean up duplicates. So I asked in a Slack group um, it, you know, what these apps were called and what, what a good one was. And somebody who, who knows a bit about macOS named uh, John Siracusa <laughs> said, did you try the menu command in the contacts app <laughs> to deduplicate. I didn't even know this was here. John, when was this added?
2: It's been there for a long time. I I asked that timidly because a lot of people have contact problems. And sometimes that dedupe command doesn't do the job. And the reason they're asking is, hey, I tried the built-in dedupe command and it couldn't couldn't do what I wanted. So now give me the third party like power app or whatever. And I was hoping that maybe you didn't even know that was in there. But yeah, it's been in there for a while. I've used it a lot. It's pretty good. Um, if you have a straight up duplication, it will handle it. If instead you've done like I've done several times where you import a bunch of V cards that are from from an old backup or something, and it, it really takes a little bit of doing, it's a good first step. Um, I think it's been in there for many, many years, but I couldn't pin it down to a particular release.
1: So this is under the card menu. So in the contacts app, card menu, look for duplicates. And it also had a feature, which is a great little thing that I frequently need where if it has a, if it has two names, you can have it optionally ha- like merge the info whenever it sees the same name in two different records, and this happens all the time because of a relatively terrible design decision in the messages app, where you and I think I think you see this a few other places like phone and stuff where you you get something from a new number, and it gives you the option create a new contact or add to existing contact, and the problem is. Does anybody else face this problem? I face this constantly. I never know. Do I have a contact for this person yet?
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: so what I want is a name search box that I can type in their name and see whether I have a contact for them yet. And then if I do add this number to it, and if I don't create a new one. And the interface doesn't let you do that. It's just create new or add to existing. And if you change your mind, you got to like cancel out of that screen and then like rebuild the entire sequence of taps or commands that got you there. Uh, so I frequently would have like, you know, uh, two, two contacts with the same name that are the same person, but one of them has an email address and one of them has a phone number. And this command also fixes that. Uh, And I I had some good luck with that as well. So I ran this earlier tonight. I fixed my entire problem. And uh, yeah, thanks. Contacts app in apparently Mavericks when this started. (laughs)
2: Uh, That was a very good feature. So the cynical message that I didn't write in the Slack to follow up is, uh, and now enjoy doing that at least once a week for the rest of your life. (laughs) Because because here's the thing. Where did the duplicates come from? (laughs) Like you didn't make two of all your contacts. Somehow they just appeared. And not knowing why they appeared, the fact that you can fix them you're like, oh, great, I've solved that problem. But then tomorrow you wake up and you have to do all your contacts again. And then you do find duplicates and fixes it. And then next week you see you have two of all your contacts. And so it's like, I hope that doesn't happen to you. But, like, but that is one of the sort of, you know, when sync goes wrong and you don't know why, it's great to be able to fix it in an automated way, but it still sort of shakes the foundation of your confidence in the, <laughs> in, in the system. Like how did this happen uh, and will it happen again?
1: Yeah, that's why I was so surprised to see it because really like the basics of iCloud syncing, the you know, contacts, calendars, like that kind of stuff has always worked very well for me. And I've heard of other people having issues. I've always I'm like a contact syncing unicorn. Never had any problems. And the amount of devices that I set up and and delete and you know, and go through is higher than average and I've carried the same database through a much longer time span than probably the average customer. And so to have gone this long without having any sync hiccups at all, I consider that a win. And when this happened, I, I was like, yeah, of course this is going to happen. Like if this happens once in, what has it, been 15 mm, years, fine. Yeah. That's
2: well, it's like mice
1: or cockroaches. Mm, yeah. You don't just see one of them.
2: Here's the speaking
1: of your database. <laughs> no, if you see one, it's okay. If you see more than one, you're
2: screwed. No, no if you see one, there's 100 you don't see. That's the whole thing. Um, speaking of database, have you made a backup of your contacts database recently slash ever?
1: Yes, right before I did the deduping, I, I did the export to the big contact archive thing.
2: That's a thing I would recommend people do. Anytime they find themselves diving into the contacts app on their Mac because they're really gonna get some stuff straight, like say before doing your holiday cards. You're like, okay, I'm going in and I'm gonna I'm gonna straighten out my addresses because a bunch of people moved and yada yada. Stop. Before you start getting in there and digging around, make a complete backup of your contacts database. The contacts app has a command to do this inside of it. Uh, and make a backup of it and don't just call it contacts backup put the date in the name put it in a folder somewhere and have multiple contacts backup so then if you do get bitten by an evil you know contacts bug that keeps duplicating your things you can always go scorched dark the beauty of contacts unlike photos and other data that is really big contacts are relatively small you can make a complete backup of them and say forget it i give up Wipe all your contacts, delete everything, and then just restore again from within the contacts app, restore from your backup and get back to hopefully a good starting point. Even doing that can be difficult because to really delete all of your contacts is that surprisingly tricky because you'd have to delete it and allow that deletion to sync to all your devices and make sure there's not one poison device screwing everything up somewhere. <laughs> and then when you're confident, okay, the only contact in there is the me contact, which is another tricky thing you got to deal with. How do you set up the me contact, right? now i'm good then you could restore from your backup but if you don't have a backup you're kind of out of luck so please everybody make a backup of your contacts before you start screwing with them
1: also if you use the um you know file export contacts archive uh version of this it puts the date in the file name for you in the box so you don't even have to type in the date it's right there
2: look at that there i don't know when they started doing that but that's convenient that's exactly what you want
1: We are sponsored this week by Flatfile, the easy, very well-featured import button for your web app. Think of the last time you imported a spreadsheet to an app. Did it work correctly the first time? Nearly everybody has dealt with formatting messy CSVs or Excel files so the data can be imported correctly into an app. It's a huge pain. Even engineers like us are not spared from this pain. We are typically doomed to build our data parsers from scratch and usually not even for the first time. I personally can relate to this. I built so many CSV importers (laughs) and it isn't just CSV upload. It's things like header mapping and data validation, or even a nice UI component, which really adds to the complexity of this as exciting as it is to build another custom importer (laughs) compared to your core product features. Our, fr- our friends at Flatfile have finally made a good solution. Flatfile Portal is the elegant import button, offering an intuitive data import experience for your app. Portal integrates with virtually any application and in a matter of minutes can intelligently ingest, validate, and transform incoming spreadsheet data so it's clean and ready to use in your backend. If you're interested in testing out Flatfile Portal in a production environment or even playing with it in a code sandbox, visit get.flatfile.io/atp. Once again, that's get.flatfile.io/atp for Flatfile Portal, the elegant import button for your app. Thank you so much to Flatfile for sponsoring our show once again.
0: Okay, so for the last couple of weeks, if you've heard the bootleg, which is our, you know, no holds barred, immediately released, not that great sound quality, no ads, uh, but you get to hear all the garbage <laughs> version of the show. I'm selling it super <laughs> really well. Really selling it. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can, you can join us in listening to the bootleg or a ad-free but nicely edited version of the show by going to ATP.fm slash join. And for those of you who have already joined, thank you, uh, you've heard me trying desperately to bring up a topic for like two or three weeks running that underscore my name is T said in the chat a couple of weeks ago. And they said, after show request for the week after next, which again is like two or three weeks ago now, uh, two, Wednesday, two Wednesdays from the time this was written is the 10th anniversary of the first Build and Analyze episode. It'd be great to hear some reflections on 10 years of podcasting, how it's changed, what's surprised you, etc. I am so desperate to hear this not because I really have anything to contribute, but because I really want to hear what you guys have to say about this. As the elder statement, statesman of the three of us, you know, what has podcasting been like for you for 10 years? And since we started with Build and Analyze in this question, let's start with Marco.
1: Well, first of all, you do have a lot to contribute to this because this show is, what, seven years old?
0: <laughs> That's a good point. I always I feel like it's Almost not that eight. old, but you're exactly <laughs> it's, right.
1: <laughs> it's like seven and a half years right. old.
0: So, yeah,
1: you're right. you know, it, it really... You have been here for most of this time. You also were listening for this whole time.
0: That's true, too. So mm-hmm. so
1: you you do have things that you should add to this. So I am going to put you on the spot and have you add stuff to this uh, later as well. But um, okay. I honestly, I you know, I don't have a lot to say about this right now. I, you know, it's in many ways what we do as the the kind of podcasters we are, which that's a big asterisk, but the kind of podcasters we are. In many ways, what we do hasn't really changed much during this time. You know, we have our handful of totally non-diverse white men uh, talking <laughs> with each other <laughs> for a couple hours each week, unscripted. You know, you know we have like an outline of topics, but we we don't like script things that we're going to say. Uh, it's re- it's a very very high quality implementation of very low production value. so like if if that makes sense like we try to sound as good as we can with sound quality and we we put in some niceties that we didn't used to do things like um chapter markers and you know we have our our ad free members version as case we're just talking about and stuff like that So, like we have like production values in that sense we and you know we do detailed show notes for each episode we do little descriptions. so like the experience in a podcast app is pretty rich our website exists and is functional and so you know
0: (laughs) it remains a product in our lineup yeah
1: no but like there's there's permalink pages for each episode that's not a given for podcasts trust me i know i make i maintain an index of podcasts like (laughs) that's far from a given uh you know our our podcast is easily shareable because we don't do dynamic ad insertion and so our timestamps matter and are stable Uh, and so stuff like that so like we we have a lot of production value on that side of things but we are not doing like a music bed under every segment and having scripted segments and interviews where we go out on scene and talk to a person in Iowa whenever like we don't, we don't do stuff like that the way like high production podcasts do. Cause that's just a different style of show. requires a, di- a totally different skill set and a staff and everything else that that's just not what we do. But what we do is a really good version of people talking to each other, unscripted, about computers and Apple News each week and, you know, funded by a few statically baked-in, host-read ads spread throughout the episode. And that basic format, we've been doing that for pretty much 10 years. You know, we've refined the format over time, but that basic thing we've been doing for pretty much the whole time, and that existed before us, and there's no sign of that stopping anytime soon in the future either. But... That's that's just what we do in our little corner of podcasting. What has mostly changed in the last 10 years is that while this version of podcasting has definitely grown, the rest of the podcasting world became way bigger and went in some pretty different directions. So our version of podcasting became a much smaller proportion of the podcasting world as a whole. And some of this is great. You know, Some of this, I, I mentioned our diversity issues earlier. As podcasting has gotten bigger, diversity has dramatically improved. And thank God, it needed to. It still needs to. We're still nowhere near like being a representative sample of the world's population. Not even close. Um, but it is way better than it used to be, and we're, we're making progress in that area. So that's good. There are other areas of where podcasting has gone that might not be so great for us. Uh, You know, things like as the big money platforms move in and start locking stuff down and making all these like exclusivity deals that take people out of podcasting and lock their stuff into a certain app or something like that's, that's not great. Like that, that actively threatens the world that we're in. Um, Not as much as people think, but it does threaten it. And also, you know, I mentioned earlier that we are, Funded, as we've been this entire time, mostly by the sponsor reads that are in each episode. And if the sponsor landscape dramatically changes in some way, that could affect us too. So even if, like, the big business side of podcasting, you know, m- most of the time we can kind of coexist and we don't get in each other's way. And what they do is over there and what we do is over here and it's fine. But if they cause major changes to happen in the sponsor landscape... That could affect us. So that could be things like if all sponsors start requiring way more tracking data than what we give them. You know, so far, we have had to turn away, I think, one or two sponsors ever because we don't do demographic tracking. But everyone else and, and they've required it and everyone else is like they ask and we say we don't do that and they say okay and they just they buy that anyway right um which should tell you something about the value of demographic trafficking anyway The <laughs> 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 but like if the sponsor landscape shifts around in bigger ways where sponsors start requiring for all the shows they sponsor the same kind of data or Other things that they get from like the really, really big shows with their dynamic ad insertion platforms and like micro targeting and tracking all that stuff, then that would affect us in a negative way. But for the most part, as the big world of podcasting has grown, most of the ways that it grows is just in having some really big shows. And if a show is really big, that doesn't really negatively affect us, you know, in, in almost any possible way. Again, these kind of like macroeconomic factors could affect us, but they so far they mostly haven't. Uh, So it's been overall good for us. But interestingly, like the thing that we do, like the the kind of shows that we make, the kind of shows I listen to, frankly. are mostly the same as they were 10 years ago. There's just, there's more of them. There, there are more people in this world than than there were back then. There are more listeners in this world. The shows have all gotten better. Like we've gotten better at doing this format. We've gotten just better at our jobs and the equipment has gotten better. The software has gotten better. Our, you know, our techniques and, and uh, you know, that that's all gotten better. And hopefully we've gotten a little bit wiser in a decade. (laughs) 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 Um, But for the most part, the The core of what we do here is basically the same but better now. Uh, and, and you know, 10 years is a long time. I think it's a lot better. But overall, we're still, you know, hanging out, talking with our friends once a week for a couple hours about technology and Apple stuff. And I love that. And, and I'm in no rush to change or stop that uh, because I still can't believe that like, we get paid to do this. Like, that's that's incredible to me. It, it's still incredible to me. I, I've said this before, so I won't go too far, too far into it. But, like, I'm not even a good speaker. I've never been a good speaker. <laughs> I, I, I don't pronounce words right, and I stutter constantly, and I don't plan what I'm saying, and I say, uh, or um, and like, and... and constantly i know this because i'm i'm the editor of the show (laughs) (laughs) you would think like as you know i did used to think before podcasting that like i could never get a job as like like one of my like kid fantasy jobs was i wanted to be a radio dj but i thought well i don't have the voice for it i I don't i don't speak well enough i don't have that kind of like low 90s radio dj voice like all that stuff so i figured yeah you know what that's i guess i won't ever be able to do that it turns out being a radio dj is a terrible job in practice And being a podcaster is an awesome job in practice. And, yeah, I could never be a radio DJ. I'm not... I don't have the right traits to do that. But I do apparently have the right traits to stumble into this because the world of podcasting is different and more forgiving and more human and less of that like polished, you know, 80s artificial perfection kind of of image. And so this... This I can do. And it still shocks me that I can do this, but... You know, now like it's been 10 years and after this long, like I'm not, I used to be nervous before every single show for probably the first six or seven years that's finally stopped. Um, but yeah, otherwise like I, I'm just very happy with what we do. I'm, I'm incredibly happy that people still tune in and listen to this stuff because to me, it's just BSing with my friends about tech that we would have been talking about anyway, (laughs) but we just (laughs) happened to record it and do it in a more, slightly more structured way. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and that you know that's how we started back then and and that's still what we're doing now so i'm just really happy that we've kind of found our groove and that this is a thing that continues to exist and that podcasting for for all of the effort that has been thrown at trying to ruin it no one has succeeded at ruining it and, and i yes. think it's i think it's <laughs> proven to be pretty resilient to being ruined by many things about its nature that that are likely to stay that way for for a while longer or at least I hope. So yeah, so far I mean even, you know back when I started I, I wasn't as much in the business um I you know I didn't make overcast until almost halfway through this period. Uh so you know I was only a podcaster before that. I I wasn't a podcast app maker uh for the whole time. So you know that that kind of changed my my view of it in certain ways but Overall, I just, I still love this world. I, I still like back when I, when I announced overcast at, uh, XOXO, I think that was like 2013 or something. Um, I, I, I gave this comparison in my presentation about how like, you know, the world of text on the web and big text was a world that I, I kind of was turned off by. Um, but the world of big podcasting was just like everything I liked. It was, it was all like good technology, good people, great audiences, Uh, and and I just, I loved how the world of podcasting worked. And that was almost seven years ago now. Uh, actually I might've been exactly seven years ago. Uh, and that's still the case. Like I still look around the web and I still look at like the world of text on the web, (laughs) you know, all the big media articles and everything. And I don't want to be a part of that world. I was for a long time and, and it's, it really took some some bad turns over the over these years and and it's not it's not a good place for a lot of people to be anymore. Some people can still make make a good time out of it but it's certainly not what it was uh, podcasting seems to just still be getting better and you know as all this big money has moved in, it's certainly you know there have been a little bit of kind of uneasy times here and there where we're not like we see some massive amount of money being spent to try to ruin it and, and it's you know it's hard not to feel a little bit scared when that happens, but so far like the, those attempts mostly just bounce off of us or they are a bunch of the big shows and the big ad networks and the big hosting platforms that host the big shows with the big ad networks, all like buying each other and doing things that affect each other, but that don't affect us over here. So as long as that dynamic continues to be the case, I'm, I'm very optimistic and I, I love the world of podcasts and I, uh, I'm very happy to be in it all this time, and I'd like to stay here.
0: <laughs> Concur. You know, I, I really want to hear what John has to say, but just briefly. You know, I was looking as we record. I I get a pretty solid first draft of the show notes together, and Marco will you know edit things here and there, and John will add things here and there and edit things occasionally. Um, but I was looking at the to get the link for your XOXO video that you just mentioned, and. You know, I found it pretty quickly and I'm looking at this and it says, you know, Marco Arment, the magazine slash Instapaper. (laughs) When he asked New York writer and programmer Marco Arment to speak at XOXO, he was still developing Instapaper, the magazine, and Tumblr was an independent startup. Since then, he sold the magazine to Glenn Fleischman, Instapaper to Betaworks, and Tumblr sold to Yahoo in a billion-dollar deal. Uh, One of the best parts of independence is choosing what you work on and Marco's clearing his plate for something brand new. It's funny to me that I'll read this and the magazine was like thirty years ago, but ATP started last year. Like that's the way I feel. About it, you know what I mean? Like the magazine was so long ago to me; it was forever ago. And yes, conceptually, intellectually, I understand that ATP was seven. You know, we started almost eight years ago now, but it doesn't feel like it's been almost eight years. Which hopefully is a testament to to the two of you and our awesome you know uh, our awesome listeners. But. Nevertheless, it's just—it's so funny how one thing can feel forever ago, and another feels like it was just yesterday. But anyway, John, what what are your thoughts on this, as the other elder statesman?
2: I feel like we need—I need to plan more surprise segments on the show to make Marco feel nervous before we record again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get back that nervous energy. Why you not right, be right. coming into the show complacent? You don't know what's going to happen. Anything can happen.
0: You got to stop pre-flighting before it's we time record. Time for Marco to get nervous again.
2: <laughs> um, yeah. I, Great. I, I think, yeah, I think Marco covered most of the industry stuff pretty well, and I think I got most of the navel-gazing-slash-back-padding out in the episode 400 Spectacular. Um, so I'll, the only thing I'll add here is uh, some personal reflections on 10 years of podcasting. Did I start hypercritical, or maybe I started on on The Incomparable before hypercritical? I don't remember. Like, this is where you keep good records of things, because no one else cares about these things. Someone says, when did you start podcasting? Honestly, I don't know. Like I can I can look it up and I can think I can determine that I think I was on the Incomparable before the first episode of Hypercritical but I might have been on another ad hoc podcast with episode with Dan Benjamin before that.
1: You were probably on on his interview show.
2: Yeah. What was that
1: called? I forgot.
2: Yeah, I don't know. We're all we're all <laughs> too old. But anyway, all I'm saying is I think I started podcasting around the same time as Marco. So here, you know, so I've been podcasting for a similar amount of time. Um, and the reason I am reflecting on this, I think about how, how did I get into podcasting? Cause I had been, you know, I've been a programmer since I left school, since even before I left school, that's been my profession. I still do it professionally. Um, and I had been, you know, in the sort of Mac web world from the Usenet groups to eventual websites and web forums. And eventually I started writing for Ars Technica and did all the Mac OS 10 reviews. So I was, you know, I was in the tech world as well. Uh, so I was a programmer, I needed tech writing, but podcasting is another thing I can't really re- remember. The first podcast I remember listening to, though, the first one that had made an impression on me was uh, Mer Lafferty's podcast called I Should Be Writing. Uh, as the tagline of the show went back when I started listening to it, it was a podcast for wannabe fiction writers by a wannabe fiction writer. Uh, at the time, Merle Lafferty wanted to be a fiction writer, and she was trying, and she made a podcast where it was literally just her and a microphone, and that was it. No no <laughs> music beds, no intro music, no theme song, just Merle Lafferty and a microphone. Um, and she would talk about the struggles of being a writer, different things about being a writer, how to plan your stories, you know, the, what to work on in your writing, the value of writer's workshops, how to try to get an agent, and you know she wasn't coming in as an expert because she was a wannabe fiction writer she was working through these things in real time and podcasting about them eventually the show tagline had to change because she became a published author she kept doing the podcast so on and so forth but anyway i would listen to her in the car as an alternative to listening to npr or whatever i was listening to on my radio because you know i, I had music i think i had music on my ipod at this point but I, you know, my cars didn't have Bluetooth and so it was kind of hard to hook up. So I would listen to NPR and when I didn't want to listen to that, say during pledge week or whatever, pledge month, pledge decade, I will listen to, I should be writing. (laughs) I didn't want to be a fiction writer particularly, you know, I I enjoyed writing and I enjoyed hearing people talk about it, but I just love listening to her talk about, I mean, she's got a great voice for podcasts. It's very calming. It's very soothing. She's, she was, you know, very sort of, uh, thoughtful, Uh, and, you know, spoke about writing with a lot of feeling, uh, but with, you know, a lot of good insights and, uh, what sounded to me like good advice for all I knew about, (laughs) about fiction writing. Um, and so that was one aspect of it. And the second one was at this time I was going into the office like we all used to (laughs) and (laughs) working as a programmer. And we, we had like, this was one of the smaller companies I was at. There's like maybe one or 200 people by the end. And start off significantly smaller. And we had a lunchroom and we'd all sit at the lunch table and eat whatever we packed as our lunch and just hang out and talk about things. And inevitably we'd end up talking about, I'd talk with my friends about tech stuff, but we'd talk about anything. It was a lot like a lunchroom at school where maybe if you sat with your nerdy friends, you got to talk about like D&D or cars or baseball or whatever it was you were nerdy about. But if you were at a more sort of, you know, general audience table, like on a field trip or something, you just talk about whatever anyone wanted to talk about. And we'd have great conversations at this table about stuff like this. And as you can imagine, me being a big blabbermouth from hearing me on all these podcasts, sometimes <laughs> I'd go off on a big rant about something. And it doesn't take much, you know. It can be <laughs> really? about refrigerators or computers or pizza or bagels or like you know whatever it would be. And sometimes I'd go off on one of those, and I'd see that I had a little audience of people who was listening to me do this, and then I would quickly shut up because I would be embarrassed or whatever. But I did take note that occasionally I could entertain an audience with the thing that I do, that I now do on podcasts. So these two things combined, hey, I like listening to Merle Lafferty talk about a topic that I'm not even that interested in, just because I find it entertaining and soothing and interesting, right? Uh, And also... I have things that I can talk about. I'm writing articles on Ars Technica and people are reading those. And I know a lot about a couple of specific tech topics. Maybe I could combine those two things. And it was a certain point where for doing both these things combining, I said, I think podcasting is a thing I might be able to do, right? Because I'd heard people podcasting and I'd had experiences in real life where occasionally people would be entertained by me talking about things. And so that sort of culminated in, you know, however it happened that it probably, knowing me, what probably happened is Dan Benjamin probably reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to be on a podcast? Because like so many things in my life, I need to be drag kicking and screaming into things that are, you know, good for me. Right. So I've always been very bad about sort of putting myself forward. Hell, it happened in Ars Technica. I don't think I've told the story a million times or not, but like I was active in the Ars Technica forums and Ken Fisher, who founded Ars Technica, reached out to me and said, hey, would you like to write something for Ars Tactica? I didn't go banging on his door and say, I want to write articles for Ars Tactica. Every, almost everything is good to happen to me has happened because someone else has dragged me into it, which is why, anyway, But that's, that's just the way I am. I'm, so I'm assuming that's what happened with podcasting as well. But at that point, I was primed to jump on that because I had already been thinking about the idea that I think podcasting could be a thing that I could do. Uh, and sure enough, 10 years later, it seems like it is a thing that I can do. <laughs> and I'm glad I did, even if I had to be dragged into a kicking and screaming. Not really kicking and screaming, but I had to be, I had to be like a vampire. I had to be invited in. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm here. You can't get rid of
0: me. It's funny how different and yet similar all three of our, our paths into this were. You know, for me, I didn't, I had, been aware of podcasting but i don't think i'd ever listened to a podcast uh until this friend of mine from when i was a child literally a child um who i think i had started to talk to again around this time uh but this guy his name was marco arment and he started this podcast called build and analyze and i thought well you know i i know i knew marco and i'm getting to know him at this point again i forget where this was in our like uh Grand reintroduction to each other, but
1: I believe I was instant messaging my friend Blista.
0: <laughs> how can we forget? On um, <laughs> AIM, <but>, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, one way or another, you know, this was around the time that Marco and I, you know, because we were as close as two kids who saw each other once a year could be. You know, when we were like ten, and then you know, and not in an angry way, we just fell out of contact for a long time, and then around this time we started to talk again. And again, I, I don't remember if we were talking already, and then build and analyze started, or if you know, build. Analyze was what spurred me into reaching out or whatever the case may be. Maybe it was Marco that reached out. I don't know. But the point is, you know, we were, we were getting to know each other again and this guy, Marco Arman, he who I no, he's a friend, you know, he's doing a podcast. I should check that out. And he does the same sort of work that I do for a living, you know, in a different environment. You know, I was all in on the Windows stuff at the time, but, you know, it's still writing code. So I should check that out. And, you know, as, as so many people have said to us, yeah, you know, well, once you start listening to Build and Analyze, you know, Marco's constantly name dropping hypercritical. And then once you start listening to hypercritical, you get constant name drops of the talk show. And so it does not take long before every waking minute of your day is spent <laughs> listening to other people talk. Um, and then, you know, I, I would listen to the show to Build and Analyze. I would listen live and I would be one of the jackals in the chat room. And I remember even though Marco and I are friends and were at the time, you know, every great once in a while, he would mention my name or, or even more impressively, because I didn't know him, John would mention my name. And my my freaking heart would beat out of my chest because like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, they, they know I exist. Like, Mar- of course, Marco knows I exist like we're friends. But nevertheless, when you hear it in the context of the show, it's like, oh, ah, oh, oh, my God, what's happening? And uh, and so that was, you know, circa 2010, 2011, something like that. And then I guess was the end of 2012 or thereabouts when I started needling Marco about doing a car show with me. And I've told the story several times before, probably on this very program, but you know, Marco had the genuinely brilliant idea of saying, well, you know, I stopped build and analyze and you know, John Syracuse just stopped hypercritical and he likes car stuff. I wonder if the three of us could do something together. And, and that's when neutral started. And, i still stand by neutral it was a disaster but it was a beautiful 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 disaster and i loved it so much and and again marco in a in a stroke of brilliance realized well when we stopped recording neutral and just started goofing off about the things that you know allegedly we weren't there to talk about which always ended up being nerdy tech stuff well marco put what was it on soundcloud the first few episodes went up is that right yeah, yeah. And then it turns out that we actually know things about technology and don't really know squat about cars. And you know, fast forward a couple of years, three, four years, and suddenly this is my job. Like it's 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 utterly bananas the path that I have taken from being one of those people in the chat room just trying to get noticed. And I mean that both in a self deprecating and also a literal way. Um, But now you know i'm I'm hosting what i like to think of at least for our you know little pond a relatively popular and important program and it's it's amazing to me that this is how i can put food on the table and how i can feed my family and how i can spend my time and and the three of us are indescribably lucky that any of you are listening much less any of you who have spent money on either an advertiser or or membership or what have you um it's wild and it's it's scary to see these changes. Scary for me because I have very chicken little tendencies. Um, it's scary for me to see all of this big money coming into big time podcasting. And while I do think a rising tide raises all boats, you know, and, and having cereal take off in such a big way, God, I've been poisoned. I almost said so bigly. Oh God, is it over yet? Oh God, um, I know it's so bad. Uh, having having cereal take off in such a big way is helpful to all of us, right? Because if 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 you're around the proverbial water cooler and everyone is saying you have to listen to Serial, this podcast, it's amazing. Well, just like I said, you know, Serial isn't about to name check the Accidental Tech podcast. But if you find this thing that you enjoy, and if you happen to enjoy Apple stuff, I like to think that, you know, ATP is one of a handful of shows that'll bubble to the top of the list of things you should check out. And so it may be that, probably more listeners than we would expect came to us in an indirect way from Serial. And it scares me to see what's going on with Spotify. It scares me to see these exclusives. It scares me to see this this seemingly inevitable march toward the Facebook Facebookification, Googleification, if you will, of, of big data, of big data advertising and tracking and so on. And obviously we have zero intention of ever doing that. And that's part of the reason why membership is a thing. But it scares me to think about that. And I, and I hope that it remains exactly as Marco describes, where they're over there, we're over here, never the two shall meet and everyone's happy. But I don't know. I I, I just I probably say this more often than I should to the point that I hope it's not frustrating, but it is important to me that listeners know that as best I can, I recognize and we recognize how incredibly lucky we are that you'll spend a couple hours of your week every week with us. And that is an incredible, incredible honor because one of the most precious things in the entire world golly, especially as we're learning in 2020 one of the most precious things that we all have is time and to spend your time with us is such a compliment and and I know all three of us are deeply appreciative and and it's extremely cool and and I know I speak for me and I'm pretty sure I speak for the other guys that you know if, if you'll have us we'll be doing this in another 10 years so don't get please don't get sick of us because we'd like to we'd we'd like to keep doing it
1: Actually, and one one last thing to add, because Casey, you kind of touched on this, like with with the serialization of podcasting and you know all these big hits and the comedians who have all these massive audiences. One major thing that has changed is that I no longer have to explain what podcasting is to people. <laughs> like <laughs> it true. used like you know ten years ago, you know people would ask me what I do, and oh yeah, I make an app and I do some podcasts. They'd be like, what? And even when I started Overcast, because I, I, I started Overcast before Serial. Not by much. It was like a year before something, but it was it was still before like that big wave started, and so I've had to explain so many times to so many people, like in the regular world who are not nerds, what podcasts are, and I largely have stopped having to do that in the last few years because they're so big now. Such a large portion of at least Americans so far listen to podcasts. It's, it's still podcasting is still very heavily skewed towards the English speaking world. Um, very, very heavily, like you know, North America and you know the English-speaking countries of Europe and you know Australia, Canada, so you know, like it's it's still very much like a an Anglo Anglo-centric. What's the word for that? An English-centric mm-hmm. thing, um, but among the people I interact with on a, you know around here in, in the English-speaking North American world podcasting is so ubiquitous podcast listening is so ubiquitous that i no longer have to explain what the heck it is to almost every single person i meet and and that's that's pretty great and that that has only come because of those massive shows that, that attract those you know giant audiences that are way way bigger than ours so you know again as long as as long as their world doesn't end up crushing our world accidentally uh then you know i'm happy that they can exist and we can exist and everything's good We are sponsored this week by Purple. Now look, you can throw some bedding on a bunch of different mattresses, and sure, they're all going to look alike. The same goes for pillows. But if you peel away the layers, look at what's inside, you'll see they aren't all created equally. And that's what makes every Purple pillow and mattress unlike anything you've ever slept on. The Purple Grid is the technology that sets the Purple mattress apart from every other mattress. It's a patented comfort technology that instantly adapts to your body's natural shape and sleep style. With over 1,800 open-air channels designed to neutralize body heat, Purple provides a cooling effect other mattresses can't replicate. And this cutting-edge technology doesn't stop with the mattresses. Every Purple pillow is also engineered with the grid for total head and neck support and absolute airflow, so you're always on the cool side of the pillow. I love that. Purple's proprietary technology has been innovating comfort for over 15 years. And you can see this. Look at their reviews. Look around the web. You will see people back this up, people who have tried multiple mattresses they always rate Purple really highly. I did the research. You can do the research. You'll see the exact same thing. You can try every Purple product risk-free with free shipping and free returns. And Purple has financing available as low as 0% APR for qualified customers. Experience the Purple grid and you will sleep like never before. Go to purple.com slash ATP10 And use promo code ATP10. For a limited time, you'll get 10% off any order of $200 or more. That's purple.com slash ATP10. Promo code ATP10 for 10% off any order of $200 or more. Terms apply. Thank you so much to Purple for sponsoring our show.
0: So you guys have spent more time with your MacBooks Air, MacBook Airs, however we pronounce it. Uh, Anything new you would like to share?
2: I have one new thing. I think someone asked about this. It was going to be an Ask ATV, but it's a shorty. Someone asked uh, Is Power Nap still present on the M1 Macs? Uh, Power Nap is the feature that's been around for a while on Mac OS X that basically says when you put your Mac to sleep, occasionally it will wake up, but not really wake up, and do a bunch of things, mostly through Apple apps that you might want it to do. Like it'll do a time machine backup, it'll check your mail, or whatever. But, you know, as far as you can tell, your computer is still asleep. Like, it won't turn on the screen. Some Macs at various times have tried not to turn on the fans or to turn them on very low RPM. And it will, you know, basically do some activity when you think it's basically sleeping in sort of a low-power state and then go back to real for realsy sleep, right? Uh, one of the <laughs> items on the slides at the presentation introducing the M1 Max was like, what was like, always-on computer? Always-on like processor. That? Yeah, always-on processor. Um, And if you have an iOS device, iPhone or iPad or something, you know, there's no power nap mode. Like, yeah, when you hit the quote unquote power button, the screen turns off. But what determines whether your mail gets checked for is whether the mail application has background processing turned on and settings, so on and so forth. The idea being that you don't put your phone to sleep. It's always kind of in this. In this same state, it knows whether the screen is on or not, and it knows whether an app should be allowed to run in the background and the iOS versions that support that or not. But there is no mode where it's like asleep and nothing is running to save power, right? It's got an always-on processor, I guess is what Apple's calling it, right? So the answer to this question, on the M1 Max, as far as I can tell, in the energy saver slash battery preference pane, there is nothing that mentions power nap. app. The place where it should be, there is just no checkbox for it, because as far as I can tell, it's not needed in the same way that it's not needed on iOS devices. Now, macOS is not iOS, and there's no sort of setting screen where you can enable background processing or whatever. So I'm not entirely sure how what the interaction is between the OS and the applications because other than to know that, that it seems like the Mac never goes to sleep sleep where nothing is happening whatsoever, it must go into a low, low power mode where maybe it just uses one of the efficiency cores or something, and in that mode... If mail is running, or if there's a background daemon that checks mail, it seems like it will execute. Um, I don't know the technical details of it. I'm just guessing, but I can tell you that I could not find a power nap checkbox. Power nap checkbox. So I think this is part of the always-on processor thing. That that is a complication that is no longer necessary now that Apple is making the guts of these things.
0: Marco, you tweeted earlier that your iMac Pro has been a breath, breath of fresh air to return to, and you are so happy to have this actually fast computer and not have to be slumming it on your MacBook Air. Did I read that right?
1: It certainly is taking many breaths of fresh air <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> through its fans that I keep hearing. <laughs> is it really that much faster, than the MacBook Air? It's,
1: I mean, the reality is like the speed difference. Yes, it is faster. Like The MacBook Air is indeed faster. Most of the time, I'm not doing, I'm not like maxing it out constantly end to end, such that I would notice the speed difference, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, I do notice the fan difference, but I'm also just really happy to be back on my iMac Pro after two weeks away because. It has all my stuff on it. It's a giant screen and it has my nice split keyboard in front of it. It's my main computer. You know, when you're away from your main computer and you get back, it's nice. And I I was able to just plow through massive amounts of work today of just like, you know, catch up admin work that I've been, that I've been, you know, putting off or missing the ability to do. Um, So I've just been, i've been getting a lot done on it so i i'm happy with this computer i i do wish i could figure out the fan noise thing it does seem to be this intermittent thing probably caused by some dust wedged in some very hard to reach places that i won't be able to get out without like disassembling the entire computer which i'm not going to do um so you know i i do wish i could i could solve that problem because i, I know that when the iMac pro is working normally like when it was new I didn't have any fan noise, like almost ever. It was it was nearly impossible to hear them. So, I you know I think it's just mostly because it's old and full of dust. But like us, I. I yeah. <laughs> but I am going to. I'm very much looking forward to what a future iMac can be. Like I don't think they need to do that much from what the MacBook Air is now. To make larger computers that are that are performance competitive, there are some areas that that I would like to mention quickly. Like you know, I, I think because we're seeing a lot a lot of uh, speculation and and worrying or, or excitement about you know how do you take the M1 and make bigger, faster, more powerful, more expandable computers with it, and we're also having a bunch of these new uh, interviews that are being done by Apple execs that are, that are constantly like. One of the biggest things everyone's talking about, especially the Apple people, is the unified memory architecture and quite how much that matters. And so there is this massive question of like, okay, we know that they can make really incredible computers at the low end with this chip. We know that as long as they cap the RAM at 16 gigs for now and as long as they don't need massive GPU power or more than four of these high-performance cores we know they can make something amazing but how do you scale that up to the other models in the lineup the number one question i have is how do you scale the ram that's that's number 1 because the gpu is is almost as important as the ram in terms of how do you make larger machines uh, but the ram i think is is probably the harder question to answer you know apple engineered this giant mac pro Case this whole new mac pro and the again when i talk to the apple people in that in that demo room after after the mac pro unveiling i talked to a few different people there and and you, you can also look at some of the comments that have been made publicly by people like craig federighi uh, you know like in in that machine's pr release cycle that really make it seem like they did not design that entire machine to be a one-off and so if you if you think, okay, well, somehow the M1 Mac world is going to have to scale up through the rest of the lineup or at least similar-ish products in the rest of the lineup. You know, I, I don't know if there's necessarily going to be an iMac Pro, but I, I know there's going to be an iMac and I know there's going to be some kind of Mac Pro and it's probably going to be very similar to the current one in you know general dimensions and capabilities and stuff. So how do you do that? We've also seen in the teardowns, of these new Macs. The way they put the RAM quote on package is really, you know, it's next to the processor. It's not part of the processor. And we actually heard from a number of people who who know more about chip design and manufacturing than I do who said that it almost it it would almost make no sense at all to ever move the RAM on die, like where it's part of the same silicon wafer and it gets punched out from the same wafer as the CPU. Because apparently the way you make DRAM is so radically different than the way you make logic chips at that silicon level that it would be a ridiculous process. And it would be inefficient in tons of ways. And it would be, like, really stupid to try to make DRAM and logic chips as part of the exact same chip. So it's going to be a separate thing. and there's, and there's So there, there is already a separation between the CPU, you know, or like the chip, and the RAM. There is some kind of interconnect between them, and I don't know. I don't know enough about modern memory bandwidth and interfaces to to know for sure. Like, how possible is it to just make that interconnect bigger and support four RAM chips instead of two, or eight, or sixteen? How much would that cost in terms of memory bandwidth or speed, or you know, would would we be reasonably able to make some kind of like RAM in a socket that we have like on the Mac Pro? And still, even on the high-end IMAX, like, can we have socketed RAM still in this new world, or are the interfaces between the pins in the socket and the CPU are those too slow? Would that cost too much performance? So there's this huge open question of how the heck we scale these things. You could also just take the current chip and just make it a lot bigger. But then you'd run into some pretty significant cost issues with the manufacturing and yields of that chip. Um, so I think the way they're probably going to have to scale it, you know, we, we speculated a couple of weeks ago. I said I think they're going to definitely move the RAM out to its own you know, area of the board um, and possibly also move the GPUs out. And John said definitely not GPUs, I think, right?
2: I don't recall this conversation, but I can... I can tell you what I think now. Um, for the Mac Pro level machines, you're thinking? I'm thinking
1: it's probably for everything above what we have now. I think it's going to be for all of the laptops that might have a discrete GPU in the past.
2: Oh, yeah. No, no. I, I think, yeah. So this is coming back to me. Yeah. No, I think there there is no way the GPU is moving out of the system on the chip for even the, their biggest, meanest laptop. I feel like the 16-inch MacBook Pro, their top-of-the-line laptop will have a quote-unquote integrated GPU. It will just be bigger. And and I say that not not because I think it's a limitation. I say that because I think they can meet their performance requirements. They can make a really, really good, powerful GPU with it being integrated by just making it bigger and putting fans on it. I look at the size of this chip.
1: Such a massive amount of the area on the chip is GPU area. And another massive amount of it is the high-performance CPU cores. And so if we think, like, how does this chip scale up to, to the next level of performance for the higher-end machines? Do they add two more CPU, two more of the high-end CPU cores, maybe, or four more, even? Um, do, they, do they double the GPU core count, so it has double the GPU performance? Like, that is roughly what we'd be talking about in terms of, you know, the performance gaps between the model lines that we have had to date. Uh, we don't know, that, that, that's a big assumption. Maybe the next-generation 16-inch MacBook Pro isn't going to be twice as fast as the air. It doesn't have to be technically like, you know, Apple can design these things however they want basically, but certainly the customer base has certain expectations and there, there have things have been done a certain way for, for a long time. And so we kind of expect that you would probably in the large laptop and in the iMac and definitely the Mac pro we expect we're probably going to have much higher core counts for the CPU uh, you know 8 core 12 core you know for the high performance cores i mean and you look at the gpu and you look at the performance of how it compares to discrete gpus today and how it might you know how, how you might be able to scale that up to achieve something like a 16 inch macbook pro or a high-end iMac or a mac pro customer would demand and i don't see how you keep this as one chip i, I don't see it scaling because you would need to make the chips so massive they wouldn't be able to manufacture any of them like it would be ridiculous with with yields and size and everything so i think there's got to be a separation of probably both the ram expanding so it can accommodate way more ram chips not necessarily being socketed i, I think the the idea of having having the ram be just in regular like ram slots that you can pop out and you know put in a stick from Crucial if you want to. I think those days are over. I even with the Mac Pro, I don't see that coming back because what we're seeing is that when they make the RAM integrated, truly integrated, the way it is now, uh, it can be way faster. Like they have just massive amounts of bandwidth to the RAM, and that, that's a big part of why the M1 is so fast. So I don't see them giving up the RAM speed necessarily, but I I also don't see them sticking with the way it is now where it's just kind of glued onto the package like as one you know very very small real estate thing uh i don't see that scaling to a mac pro that, that supports hundreds of gigs of ram I, I don't i don't see how they can do that they, they need more they just need more chips simple as that like they need more chips um they need more ssd chips too like to get larger storage capacities there like they just they need to scale these up and so the question is how do they scale these up um, And you look at the real estate on the chip, on on the main chip, and I don't see how you meaningfully scale up CPU cores or GPU performance without splitting up that chip also. So I still think that the way this scales up is the package gets split into everything that's in it now except the GPU, which gets split off into its own thing. And there's, they can do whatever they want with how they talk to each other. They can have some kind of massive, hot, wide bandwidth internet, or interconnect between the CPU, the GPU, and the RAM. But I don't see... I mean, they know way more about chip design than I do, but I don't see how you double the core count and double the GPU size and not have some massive chip that it was very, very hard to manufacture. Uh, and I also don't see how you really scale up to achieve their high-end performance needs for their higher-end products without doing that like without having twice the cpu cores and without having at least twice the gpu area this remains to be seen like how they're going to do this but i also you look at how the m1 is turning out so far you look at what they're talking about what they're really pushing and the unified memory architecture does not sound like it's going to be optional in the future it sounds like they're all going to have that So somehow they're going to keep a unified memory architecture, but they're going to have to be able to support way more RAM than they have now, more CPU cores and more GPU cores. So I don't know how they do that without splitting this up.
2: People are getting hung up, hung up a little bit on the unified memory architecture thing. Like uh, part of that is, you know, I think we said this before, like this is it's a marketing term in some respects in that they're trying to give a name to a thing that they're doing that lots of computers used to do. Only computers used to do it to save money, but Apple is not doing it to necessarily save money, which is not having a dedicated pool of video memory. Now, it was the cheap computers would do that because it's cheaper not to have a bunch of video memory because there's a bunch of extra expensive chips you need to have. So we can just use system memory. Macs have done this. You you go back to like classic Mac OS or 68K Macs, yeah, a lot of them had a quote-unquote unified memory architecture. That's all it means is that there's not separate VRAM, right? The, you know, the iPhones and iPads and the ARM-based Macs are doing it for performance reasons. Most of all, well, you know, part of it is cost and power savings on, on the, on, you know, iOS devices, right? But on the Mac, for these similar devices that are also power-constrained, um, they're doing it just to, you know, to save the power, but also because they can get really good performance. Like the, the memory bandwidth of this unpackaged RAM is like, three times what it was on the intel machines that they replace right so that's a benefit and also it's a benefit that you don't have to power the extra vram chips and yada yada um but like you said Margo, if you you know same thing with the on package ram and everything if you scale that up to the mac pro the mac pro you can put 1.5 terabytes of ram in um you i mean (laughs) you could make a gigantic package and have 1.5 terabytes of on package ram but that Starts to look a little bit silly. You'd have this little tiny system on a chip in the corner, and then you'd have <laughs> ram chip, ram chip, ram chip, just rows and a rows of them lined up, or probably lined up around it in a circle. Um, it, you know, you could do it. Like if you um, if you look at some the, the modern game consoles, I always look at them. A lot of people are asking, like, and you made the same point, like, how big of a GPU can you put on die? Because the GPU is on die. The CPU, GPU, neural engine, that's all on the system on a chip die. And then next to it, in the same package, are the ram chips. How big can you double the size of the GPU on a die? Absolutely you can. Look at the uh, Xbox Series X or PlayStation 5. They have an AMD CPU and an, a, a pretty darn big AMD GPU all on the same die. It's a bigger die. It takes more power than the M1, that's for sure, but you absolutely can do it. And those GPUs would more than satisfy the needs of a 16-inch MacBook Pro. Again, the 16-inch MacBook Pro has never been like a gaming laptop. We're not asking it to have... The world's highest end gpu but the the best discrete gpu apple has ever shipped on a laptop i feel like apple will have no problem matching that performance with an on die gpu right imac is potentially a different story depending on how they go in that direction and of course mac pro is an entirely different story because the mac pro can have four gpus and you're not you're not gonna you know or even more than that you're not going to fit that onto the die because that's where you start pushing the limits of the die size um the ram question is interesting if we can I'm looking at the clock, I'm thinking we can segue this into the very first Ask ATP question, if that's okay with Casey. Totally. Oh, nicely
0: done. <laughs> nicely done.
2: Because um, that's what this this first question is about here. I'll let Casey read it because he's good at reading questions, but then I will attempt I will <laughs> to answer it.
0: <laughs> All right. So Chris Uh, Choffy, uh Chris C. writes, the current M1 chips have been system-on-a-chip-style chips with the RAM right in the chip package. My first thought that w- was that that would be fine for lower-end chips and maybe even all laptops, but for higher-end systems like the iMac Pro and the Mac Pro, surely on-chip RAM can't be the end state. This is what Marco was describing. Then I thought about the memory hierarchy, where computers really only operate on registers, and everything above that is just slower but larger forms of cache. L1, L2, RAM, even you know SSD storage. So for some future Mac Pro, the ultimate Mac Pro, what if Apple keeps only 8 or 16 gigs of fast RAM on chip, maybe even calling it an L4 cache, and then allows off-chip cache that just so happens to be user-serviceable DRAM chips? I think this would give Apple a huge performance boost for the memory-intensive tasks that people put hundreds of gigabytes of RAM into a Mac Pro for, while allowing them to keep a lower number of variants that they need to design in stock.
2: All right, so here, this question is... uh basically about the cache hierarchy, the memory hierarchy in computers. So a brief sort of, uh, you know, introduction to this concept, you know, memory, uh, is just a place to store data, but there's memories of different speeds and different latencies inside your computer. Um, when your CPU or GPU or whatever is doing some kind of processing, the fastest sort of closest lowest latency memory are registers, and they hold small amounts of data, one or two numbers, five numbers, whatever, depending how big the registers are. And there's, you know, 10, 20 of those depending on the execution unit. So those are registers very, very tiny, just one, you know, 10 or 21 number slots or something like that. Right. Above that, you have what they call level one or L1 cache, which is on, you know, also on the CPU, you know, the, the. CPU die just like the registers, um, and that is a smaller amount, some amount of kilobytes or maybe a couple of megabytes or whatever, depending of memory. What makes that memory fast? Registers are barely like memory; it's like you know, like a mail slot. You can put a, one or two little things in there. SIMD registers get weird because they're a little bit wider, but it, they're small, right? L one cache is a pool of memory, but it's a pool, a tiny pool in in you know, in, in the grand scheme of things. Why don't computers just make all their memory L one cache? If L1 cache is the fastest memory and it's right next to the computer, why don't they just? Why not make everything out of the, the stuff that the black box is made of? Why not make the whole plane out of the black box? Whatever. Um, <laughs> it's the same answer, right? So L1 cache. First of all, you can't put 1.5 terabytes on die because your die can't be that big, right? So that's reason number one. Number two is when you make the memory that makes up L1 cache, it's a different kind of memory than DRAM. Usually, it's SDRAM or something similar. SRAM. Or SRAM, there you go. The the different, the different, main difference in, the, in terms of economics that you care about is, whereas in DRAM, we try to use as few transistors as possible to store a bit of memory, SRAM will use like six or eight transistors to store one bit of memory. It's it's complicated. You can look into it and see. But basically, what it boils down to is it costs way more money and takes up way more space to store one bit in SRAM than it does in DRAM. All right, so it's a cost speed trade off. So that's your L1. L two is also on the die. An even larger pool of memory that is more distant in terms of latency and slower than the L1, right? So there's your cache hierarchy. Registers L1, L2. Sometimes you'll have an L3 and you could keep going what level and the whole you know however many levels of, of uh, cache you want to have. All about to memory and you can visualize the hard drive being another pool of caching for RAM, just even slower and more distant. Uh, the key point of the cache hierarchy is the, the sort of the closer you get to being L1, or you know, or registers or whatever, the more expensive it is, the lower latency, meaning how long does it take for me to get anything into or out of it, and the more expensive it is. Uh, and to have a useful cache hierarchy, you need gaps between them. You need your L1 to be slower, cheaper, and more distant than registers, otherwise why wouldn't you just use registers you need l2 to be slower cheaper and more distant than l1 right you need ram to be slower cheaper and more distant than l2 that's the point of the hierarchy if l1 was two percent faster than l2 you're not you know doing something useful because having that cache hierarchy has overhead the way cache hierarchies work is when you need some piece of memory you can say okay well let me check is it in a register well this is not how the world works but just imagine you can check whether it's in a register if it's not in a register you can look in l1 but it might not be in l1 if it's not in l1 you can check l2 but it might not be in l2 if it's not l2 you can check in ram all of that checking takes time and adds complexity and then you have cache invalidation which is one of the two hard problems in computer science naming be the other one i'm not going to do the joke um <laughs> you you uh then you have to invalidate that memory. If something changes something in the memory, oh, but I have a cached copy, copy of that in L2 and possibly a cache copy in L1. You need to invalidate those caches uh, or have some sort of cache coherency algorithm, especially when you have multiple cores sharing different pools of memory to make sure everyone's all on the same page in some well-defined way. So, there are, so there's a complexity to a cache hierarchy and to, for that complexity to be useful, you need the cache hierarchy to be distant from each other. You need them to be different you need them have different performance characteristics you need the more distant ones to be bigger and cheaper to make up for the fact that they're slower you don't want a cache hierarchy where each level of cache is like a tiny percentage different than the previous one so getting back to this question finally what about a mac that has like an m1 or whatever style chip where there is on package ram that counts as kind of like an l4 cache And then the big pool of 1.5 terabytes of DRAM, like in the Mac Pro, in slots on the motherboard that's slower, right? So I just got done saying uh, uh, a little bit earlier that, according to people who have measured this, the memory bandwidth of the on-package RAM on M1 chips is about three times as fast as it was on the Intel laptops that they're replacing, in terms of bandwidth, like whatever it was, like 60 gigabytes per second or something, or gigabits, I forget, but whatever it is, it's around three times as fast. Three times as fast, or three times as much bandwidth or whatever, I think is pushing the limits on an acceptable difference in performance for a cache hierarchy, right? It's not 1%, but it's also not an order of magnitude, and it's also not two orders of magnitude, right? So I question whether... Well, first first of all, even if you just accept all those numbers and say, well, DRAMs, say the DRAM was like the speed of the Intel DRAM, which I don't accept as a given, but say it was, you've got a cache hierarchy where there's a three X difference between, you know, the L4 and then the the DRAM. I feel like that may not be worth, the, the juice may not be worth that squeeze, right? That you'd want a bigger gap in the cache hierarchy. And the second thing is, getting back to Marco's question, I don't think there's any reason that you can't have an extremely high-bandwidth, high-performance memory bus that is that talks to RAM that is not on the package. Just because the Intel MacBook Pros had RAM that was three times as slow as the M1s did doesn't mean that the $6,000 high-end Mac Pro can't have an extremely high-bandwidth memory bus. And I haven't looked up the numbers, but for all I know, the current Mac Pros have a higher bandwidth memory bus than the Intel MacBook Pros, which wouldn't surprise me or whatever. Again, I point to game consoles that have had similar problems where they need to have a large pool of memory to feed that big honking GPU that's in their system on a chip or whatever. And a lot of them do actually arrange on the motherboard a bunch of RAM chips in a circular pattern so they're equidistant from the big giant SoC to feed it. That's not, you know, there's no DIMs, right? Because it's, it's a game console and it's like 500 bucks or whatever. But you can have, or just look at any GPU, you can have very high bandwidth pools of memory they're not literally on the same package but are on the same board look at a high-end gpu look at their pools of multiple gigabytes of memory you can buy gpus with like 16 32 gigs of memory that memory has a huge extremely wide sometimes like 5 12 bits wide uh, buses to and from the gpu right so i'm thinking that almost all the benefit you get of having the the sort of on package memory chips you can get by having an extremely expensive extremely wide slightly more distant as in not on the same package but still on the same board bus on your six thousand dollar plus mac pro so when i'm picturing a mac pro in my head i like the, the only reason i can imagine doing this sort of l4 based approach where there's there's the very fast ram that's close to it in the big distant pool is if apple couldn't justify the expense of doing a custom solution because uh what chris describes would work and be feasible i still think the gap in performance wouldn't be big enough to justify having a separate pool of ram but you could do it and the only reason you do it is like well we didn't want to make a whole new chip that doesn't have it has an entirely different interface to memory so we'll just take what we have which is whatever the biggest chip we had in our 16 inch macbook pro and then tack on a bunch more memory and everything but i have a feeling that's not what apple would do again going back to marco's you know impression that he got from hearing people talk about the mac pro that this beautiful giant case over here like was not made in a world where apple didn't know it was making our macs like they knew right so there has to be a plan for that and apple is not shy about charging a lot of money if they, if they want to do it so i feel like they should end up with a solution that is properly fit for a computer of this size. It doesn't have to be quite as modular. It may not use standardized parts, but a solution that gives you huge amounts of Ram that are also very, very fast is definitely feasible and it doesn't require any sort of gymnastics. The GPU question is a little bit different because Apple has in the past made computers that have a quote unquote integrated GPU. And then in more distant, uh, but more powerful discrete gpus and they could do that again because the os certainly supports it but they could also just excise the gpu entirely from the system on a chip and put it entirely external on the on a machine like the mac pro because what is all that space in the mac pro for if not to put cards that potentially have G- multiple gpus on them and tons of ram and all that other stuff mm-hmm. um i wanted to look up the die, the relative die sizes and i couldn't do it in time maybe i'll do it for next week but i was trying to look up you know how much bigger can the die get? The M1.
1: Yeah, I tried looking this up actually.
2: Do you have a? I found the Intel die size, but I couldn't find the M1 die size. So my impression, just looking at the iFixit thing, is the M1 die, like the, it's not anywhere near the limits of what is reasonable to put on a single die. So I, if I imagine it in a Mac Pro type system where you've removed the RAM from the package and also removed the GPU. There's plenty, and and again, look at the cooling solution <laughs> that the Mac Pro case has available to it. It has so much available cooling for a chip that so far barely needs a wimpy laptop fan. You could make, I feel like you can make the M1 four times as big, ditch the pa- the RAM off the package and dip, ditch the GPU off the package and still not put a dent in this thing's CPU cooling capacity, right? So I think lots of things are possible, depending on how far Apple is willing to go. And the Mac Pro is the machine that has the least ambiguity about what they're going to do. Because we know his whole purpose in life is to have huge capacity. So whatever it takes to get huge capacity, Apple will do that, right? The real machines, in my question, are what do they do with the iMac? Because the iMac, you could squint and say, well, whatever you did for the 16-inch Mac Pro, do it for the iMac. But then again, what about the iMac Pro? Well, then maybe we can do something in between. It's those type of machines where... I'm interested in how they're going to make that trade-off between just do what you did in the laptops, but more and faster. You could end up running into limits there because if you want a GPU that is bigger than you could fit in any laptop, iMac Pro can support that. It's got the cooling solution for it, but you do eventually run into the limit of the quote-unquote integrated GPU. You know, as far as we know, like what's the biggest GPU we've ever seen shoved onto a system on a chip? It's probably this current generation of consoles, and it's pretty darn big. But you can get bigger and faster GPUs, discrete, no problem whatsoever. So that that's where the real question is, and that's just a trade off that Apple is going to make. But I think on the top end Mac Pro, there's no reason that they can't have discrete GPUs, discrete RAM, and still have amazing performance. It's, it's just a question of money. How do you make uh, very <laughs> high bandwidth, uh, high speed RAM interfaces? Uh, You give the chip more power, and you spend more money on Intertex, and you charge more money for the product, and Apple's really good at that. So I have some (laughs) confidence that they will will sort this out for the Mac Pro, especially if you consider, well, I mean, again, don't try to associate price with parts in the Mac Pro. It won't add up for you. But those Xeons they buy from Intel are ridiculously expensive, and they don't have any, you know, GPU in them that Apple is using in their Mac Pros. They don't have a neural engine inside them. They don't have any of that stuff in there, right? And they cost so much money. Apple, you know, will get Apple will get its M-whatevers for the Mac Pro. They'll get them at cost because they make them themselves, right? They just have to pay a Taiwan Semiconductor Margin or whatever. So I'm hoping that whatever money they save by making the system on a chip themselves for the Mac Pro, they can spend that on more exotic, faster memory interfaces and so on. And it will end up being a really good machine. Yeah, you've kind of convinced me
1: a little bit because I was I looked up the the die size numbers and I I don't think anyone has measured the M1 die size yet, but
2: that's what I couldn't find.
1: Yeah, like the A12X for reference is about 128 square millimeters, and to put that in context, like the high Xeon core count, like the 18 core Xeons, are in the like 500 square me- square millimeter range. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's certainly a long way to go between. You know, A12X size, which is probably a little bit smaller than the M1, but probably, probably not that much smaller um, You know, at, at 128-ish, and the Xeon's at like 500-ish.
2: And remember, they don't, like, it, it's not like you take the M1 and say, well, just stamp out four of those, because if you're multiplying the cores, the, the CPU cores are not 100% of the chip. You're not adding a second neural engine, right? You're not adding a second image processing engine. Maybe you make those a little bit bigger, but you're just multiplying the cores. So multiplying the cores does not multiply the size of the you know the die area by the same amount so if you had four times the die area you could you can get more than four times the cores or you can get twice as many cores and twice as many gpu cores and still not be at a 4x scaling so there's breathing room there and mostly what i think about is again the cooling capacity of this gigantic computer look at what it's cooling now look how many watts this xeon takes what how many watts does the 28 core xeon take to try many try to use that power budget try to use that power budget with (laughs) apple's processor how big would you have to make this die how high would you have to clock it to absorb that power budget and that's assuming that apple even wants to absorb that power budget like there's so much headroom that they can basically like i was i was thinking this idly the other day is like if you took the m1 and you just put it straight into the mac pro's chassis and just overclocked it until you couldn't cool it anymore how fast could you make it go (laughs) <laughs> it's not, i know cooling is not the only only limiting factor on clocking eventually you're running to design constraints having to do with pipeline depth and so on and so forth but like i feel like they have a lot of headroom to make faster computers once you can plug them in and put a huge fan on top of it and that's what makes me fairly confident that technologically speaking there's nothing stopping them from making an amazing mac pro the only thing that would be stopping them is like budgetary considerations and we, we've talked about this before like how exotic does Apple want to make things for the Mac? So far, the answer is not that exotic because if you squint these, they look a lot like an A14X, which is exactly the appropriate thing to do for the machines they've introduced, but Apple has not yet proven that they're willing to invest a huge amount of money to make a design that is radically different than, uh, than what they use in their iOS devices. There have been a couple of interviews where Apple people have been insisting, no, no, this isn't just an A14X. You see, we had to do X and Y and Z for the Mac and mostly they refer to things like expected texture formats for the Mac operating system and stuff like that. And that's all true. Like, it's not just a straight up, like, we just took an A14X and put it into a Mac. But the but the tweaks are minor compared to the idea of, like, we made a whole new processor core or, you know, we, we invested to, uh, in getting the GPU... Uh, you know, the whole discrete GPU interface. And, and by the way, you can have a discrete GPU with still still have a unified memory architecture. You can have the RAM off-chip and still have a unified memory architecture because unified memory architecture just means no separate VRAM. The GPU and the CPU all look at the same pool of memory. You can There's no reason you can't continue to do that no matter where you put the GPU, no matter where you put the RAM. It just gets much more difficult and expensive and takes an investment because iOS devices and the M1 work nothing like that. So you'd have to invest in saying... Okay, I'm going to make a chip that supports this, you know, huge number of PCI Express lanes and has more Thunderbolt connectivity and can drive umpteen 6K displays and knows how to talk to the external discrete Apple GPU and shares its fast RAM pool with the CPU and it's all soldered to the board and you have to pick when you buy whether you want the one terabyte configuration or the 512 or the 64, you know, whatever they come up with, right? Um, or they could just down the capacity. Like it's not outside the realm of possibility that the first arm based Mac pro does not support 1.4 terabytes of Ram. And Apple just has a story for you about how it doesn't need it. I can see that happening too, because it's all soldered to the board and the biggest config they have is a 768, and yada, yada, like, but that would still be an amazing machine. So, yeah. And as we all suspect, like that will probably be the last machine they introduced. Uh, and in the meantime, we will get to see how much of an appetite Apple has to to crank this thing up and to make more exotic designs with things like the iMac, which I think is the first point where we could reasonably assume that the machine could support something other than an M one style thing where everything is in the same place. It's just bigger. I think they're going to do that all the way through the whole laptops. Then the iMac is the first, and maybe just the iMac pro if they have one is the first opportunity where they probably should consider doing something other than exactly the same thing they've done for laptops, but bigger.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Marco, how how much RAM did your prior MacBook, I guess your MacBook Pro, how much RAM does that have? Is it 32 gigs?
1: Nope, 16. I've been getting 16 for a while.
0: Oh, okay. So, Wait, I think. Something, I actually don't know.
1: Wait a minute. <laughs> I, it's whatever the uh, stock configuration is at the slightly higher than base level. Let me see.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I don't even Move know
1: on, I mean. I'll answer it in a second. <laughs> All
0: right, so the reason I bring this up is because I... How do I not know? Because it ultimately (laughs) doesn't really matter. Uh, I I agree that especially the Mac Pro probably needs a metric crap ton. Okay. It probably needs a metric crap ton of RAM for certain use cases. You know, not most people, certainly not the three of us, but in certain use cases, you probably do want to have a metric crap ton of RAM in the Mac Pro. But for everyone except those, you know, oddballs, I keep thinking about how I heard a lot of people like me complaining about 16 gigs of RAM as the maximum in these new M1 Macs, but I haven't heard anyone who has had one and used one really complain about it not having enough RAM, which is many words to say, I don't know if we should really judge them, the same. these M1 Macs, or is you know, Apple Silicon Macs. I don't know if we should judge them the same way we judge Intel Macs. Because my my 13-inch MacBook Pro is 32 gigs of RAM, and I think that that's probably as low as I would want to go on an Intel machine in 2020 or 2021, as we're almost there. But on a Apple Silicon Mac, uh, I would probably entertain 16, now that I know a little more.
2: So I'm going to push back on this. I do see this conversation happening, and I tried to wave people off from her last time, and I'll try again. Uh, the the architecture and the unified memory thing does not make mac os use less memory oh no totally now the code page the you know the the code segment of executables may be different size on arm versus x86 although i wouldn't necessarily imagine that it'll be smaller on arm because x86 has variable width instructions and arm i believe does not so that actually can make the arm executables bigger but anyway Um, Well,
1: there is there is the texture format thing that that often needs like multiple copies of video memory uh, on Intel machines. But, you know, that's it's still not going to be
2: everything. I'm not saying they're exactly the same because they're not. But they vary in ways that are not like, oh, well, I could get away with with uh, an 8 gig ARM Mac, but I would require a 16 gig Intel. No, there is nothing with the architecture. There's nothing with anything that has changed in the hardware or the operating system that makes that a reality. What has changed is, you know, three times the memory bandwidth and just faster overall. Um, and so, and, or, you know, the SSD in the air got twice as fast. All that can contribute to make swapping more tolerable. But in the end, if you need to have some thing that's bigger than eight gigabytes in, in working memory at the same time, and on you get a machine that they can't support that and it has to swap, it's going to be slower slower in a way that you will notice and feel sad about it's just that most people don't have those kind of workloads the closest people have is they open lots and lots of apps and the ones they don't use get paged out and they switch to them and they get paged back in right but once they're in they're they're working okay right so there's there's nothing about like you know the the to the arm that is making it so suddenly you can get away with half as much ram and i would tell people that the trend always goes that you need more ram in the future not less So don't certainly don't skimp on RAM by getting an ARM-based Mac that has less RAM than you than you're currently using that you think you need. And in fact, maybe consider getting more that even if you're getting away with an 8 gig machine now, get a 16 gig one anyway, just because that's one of the best things you can do to future proof uh, a computer like this. And it's not that too costly of an upgrade. Right. You know, and and this is in contrast to iOS which does handle memory very differently from mac os which lets ios devices get away with having a lot less ram than a mac but trust me you would not want a mac that handles memory the way ios devices do because it would drive you up a wall uh, in general on the mac it's frowned upon to kill an application out from underneath someone while they're using it whereas in ios that's just the way everything has always worked so yeah. uh once again get i'm not saying everyone needs 16 gigs because maybe they don't right and if you're pushing the limits on eight having faster memory bandwidth and a faster ssd in your macbook air is going to make it feel a lot better than an intel machine with eight but if you have and need 16 now don't get an 8 gig m1 mac you'll be sad yeah and i would
1: also push back a little bit on the argument too that like you know people are saying oh maybe maybe the these things are so fast that you know machines like the mac pro don't need more than x whatever that whatever you guess that number would be but The point of machines like the Mac Pro is to be that relief valve of, like, Apple makes a decision for, quote, almost everyone for the rest of their lineup, but something... Like, you can't... This is the lesson we've learned with, like, Mac Pro neglect over the years. Like, you can't just not serve extreme needs at all in your entire product lineup when you are the only vendor of all hardware that your software platform can run on. Like, you have to... There has to be some something in your lineup that people who have really specialized needs can have those needs satisfied by and the mac pro and the mac mini are that are those things like those two products combined do a huge they they carry a huge amount of weight from special needs and so you know the, the reason the mac pro now can be configured to one and a half terabytes of ram is that people need that not a lot of people probably not you definitely not me but there are people out there who need it and to them that's like that that could make the difference between being able to use this computer for their intended application or just not being able to use a mac at all and having to go to you know linux or something, god knows what um so like we do need those extreme needs to be servable and served by something like the mac pro even if you know most of us quote most of us or most people don't need that it is important to have those needs served somewhere and so i am not advocating in this transition for things like the mac pro to get significantly reduced in their usefulness um and i and i i hope that's not the direction apple goes and that's why it's such an interesting thought experiment to try to figure out like, okay well how do they scale this up You know, there are so many advantages to the M1 that we see now that you think about how they scale it up and it's non-trivial. Because it's like, again, what we've been saying, saying like, how do you scale up to these massive amounts of RAM? How do you accommodate RAM slots if you still want to do that? Which is pretty important to that market. What about error correcting RAM? ECC RAM? So far, Apple has never made a memory controller that supports ECC RAM. Can they? Probably. Will they? Who knows? Uh, That becomes pretty important when you have that much of it. Uh, you know like there's there's all these all these questions that we just have yet to have answers for with the arm transition and some of them the answer is going to end up being yeah they just don't support that anymore and i hope there's not many things where that's the answer but the higher end they push these new chips the more we're going to get those answers and the more curious i am to see what the answers are honestly
0: Colin DeVore writes, it seems like the next few years are going to continue to be incredibly exciting for the Mac. My question, is there any concern over the longevity of these chips? Intel based Macs have a habit of lasting five years or more. I love being able to buy a Mac and use it for many years without even needing to think about buying a new computer, unlike the three of us. Should (laughs) there be any discussion around how long the M1 chips will last? I mean, I I don't see why it would be any different i mean we have exemplars sort of of this with ios devices and you know i have ios devices in the house that are many years old that haven't been turned on in years that i like just the other day i did this with one of my ipad minis it hadn't been on in at least a year maybe even two years and i turned it on it worked no sweat and i i take the point but i'm not personally worried about this should i be
2: I mean, my question about this question was, uh, is this about the reliability of the chip, as in it'll break after five years? Or, like, how long will these machines still be useful, as in, like, can I keep using a computer for 10 years? And, by the way, buying a new computer every year, unlike you blokes, not me. I'm the one who had a computer for 10 years. Um, So for for the chip reliability question, I see no reason why apple's system on chips would be any less reliable than the ones they've been making for years and years in their phones and ipads so if you've had an iphone or an ipad like in general iphones and ipads die usually because the batteries go bad or someone drops them and breaks the screen or eventually if you actually let them survive long enough they just get too slow uh so but no none of it has had to do with like oh the chip fries itself or something that's that's not a problem so I i don't worry about that in terms of mac usefulness this really depends like I've been thinking about this with everyone uh, gushing over the, the M1 Max, right? We were in a bad period where Intel's performance was not getting much faster year after year, right? And Apple just leapfrogged all of their Intel Macs with these M1 base Max. Um, and this is just the first round. The second round will be faster still, and the third round will be faster still. But once that happens, kind of like me getting the 6K display, it very quickly becomes the new normal, Right. And you're like, oh, well, I'm just used to this now. This is just the way things are. If you get used to M1, like, you know, your M1 Mac, and, you know, two years go by, the transition is complete. Every single Mac Apple has his ARM, And you have the, you know, $999 M1 arm. Suddenly you have the slowest computer Apple sells. You were so overjoyed because it was faster than the fastest laptop Apple sells when you got it. But now that they made the transition, now yours is the slowest. Does, you know, does that make your computer less useful to you two years later? Well, no, it's just as useful as it was before. Like, I don't think it's going to get any slower, but faster options will become available. And then like, you know, by that point, maybe the M2 based MacBook Air is out and you have the M1 based MacBook Air and you look at the M2 based one and you're like, huh, that one's only $999 too. And it's whatever amount faster than this one. And your computer didn't get any slower, but you know, there are faster ones available. Uh, so if you, if you look at the M1 now, it's like, this is going to, this is going to last such a long time because I'm getting high end Mac performance at a low end price, but that high end Mac performance is going to move on and leave you behind. And so you may find that not that it isn't useful anymore, but that you can get, you know, if things continue to go at this pace, so much better performance by buying the two or three year newer MacBook air model to replace it in two or three years. So overall, I would say it's probably about a wash because the, the good thing about the Intel computers has been since their progress has been so slow, if you buy an Intel-based computer setting aside the stupid keyboard crap, which really threw a monkey wrench into this. But let's say like, <laughs> I was gonna use the Mac Mini, that's a bad example too, an iMac. If you bought an Intel-based iMac, there's a safe machine, bought an Intel-based iMac three years ago, before, the, you know, and the, you know, right today, how much faster of an iMac can you get? You look at them and you're like, hey, still pretty good it's still you know 90 percent as fast as the fastest iMac that you can get today yeah i'm good for a few more years right whereas we made this huge leap to the the arm base max but if they keep going on a trajectory that is a, has a steeper slope than intel max in terms of performance year over year it's going to make your m1 mac feel r- slower relative the best to the best you can buy More so than the Intel ones. Because the good thing about Intel Macs not getting much faster is it made your Intel-based Mac (laughs) not feel that slow year after year. Um, So I feel like those two things are going to balance each other out. That I do feel like, especially in the laptop realm, Apple has passed a a new threshold of performance and battery life that puts it up into, like, like we've seen with the iPad, puts it up into a category where, they're really satisfying most people's needs. Like there's a reason iPad battery life hasn't doubled because it doesn't need to double. iPad battery life is pretty good for most people doing most things, right? It has been for years. And most people who have iPads don't say, I like iPads, but boy, the battery just dies after it is just too, you know, I can't stand the battery life. It's terrible. People don't say that about iPads, right? In the same way, I feel like that, that MacBook air that you bought Its performance will still be acceptable for all the things you do on it if you're happy with it now, and its battery life may have passed some threshold where it is now close to being acceptable. So in that respect, it will last you a long time. But on the other side of it, you should be able to get a much better MacBook Air in two years, and you will be tempted to do so. So that's why I'm just going to call it a tie and say, whatever lifetime you've been getting out of your Intel-based Macs, expect to get a similar useful lifetime out of the ARM-based ones. It's just that the factors influencing your decision to upgrade may be a little bit different.
0: All right. Finally, Nick asks, I just accidentally spent 200 pounds on cable management stuff for my three screen desktop setup. The daily paper cut of kicking cables and seeing the mess made me finally snap. Do you all just leave your cables where they may fall or do you get super particular about it like I just did? Or do you land somewhere in between? I have tried off and on over the years to do anything related to cable management. It never sticks. And then I just regret the waste of time I had trying to make everything pretty so I don't bother with it at all. My desk is an absolute mess in the back. John, I would love to hear what you have to say about this. So
2: I have two things going for me and against me when it comes to cable management. Uh, And they're both the same thing. Uh, my, my computer <laughs> desk is up against the wall. I don't have a lot of room. My computer, my quote unquote computer room is not that big. It's also got my PlayStation in it. It's kind of tight in here. I've got big bookshelves. Um, but my computer is up against the wall. That's a, a pain for cable management because to manage cables, you kind of get to get to where the cables are, which is in the couple of inches between my desk and the wall. And no, my desk isn't on wheels and no, it's not a standing desk. So to do anything back there is really difficult you know because there's a wall there and you got to be like on your back looking up or coming from above and behind and you can't see anything if my desk was like in the middle of a giant open area i could just walk around to the other side of the desk and do all my beautiful cable management and tie everything off and put it in a little chunk. but i can't it's all like trying to work on the underside of a car without jacks it's, it's really torturous but that exact thing is also my saving grace because it's against the wall Nobody can see what's going on back there for the most part. So and the second thing I have going for me is that my desk that's up against the wall has a big piece of metal that goes from basically from near the top of the desk about halfway down to the floor. And that piece of metal can hide a lot of sins. So my main cable (laughs) management strategy is to make things look neat from the perspective of someone who's in the room or someone who's sitting in front of the computer and to hide all my sins between the wall and that piece of metal, right? So I don't want to see cables snaking around. I don't want to, you know, I, I want them to basically just go from the devices straight to the back of the desk and downward. And then I never want to see them again until they emerge beautifully and plug into the computer they're supposed to plug into. (laughs) And I have mostly achieved that. But were you to look behind my computer, you would see where all the, the bodies are buried. You would see that it's not really that neat back there. And yeah, all the cables do beautifully go over the edge of the desk and reappear where they need to. But in between bad things happen. Same thing for, because I use a wired keyboard and mouse just because I do. The wires that go from my keyboard, and my, you know, they go from my keyboard tray and they somehow go up and they don't dangle and I don't kick them or whatever. And they appear in the back of my computer. And how do they get there? Well, if you lay on your back and slide yourself under my desk, you will see a series of cable clips that are snaking their way in a random pattern from my mouse and my keyboard to my computer. Um, so I guess the answer to that question is I'm not carefully uh, arranging my cables, but I'm providing the illusion that I'm capably managing my cables <laughs> by hiding all. The, it's like this shoving everything in a closet version of cleaning the house. Like the house looks neat, but don't open the closet. <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah, I, I do a little bit better, but I, I still wouldn't say I do a great job of this. Uh, I do have a standing desk and that helps a lot uh, for two main reasons. Number one, when you are arranging your cables, you can raise the desk so that you can more easily fit under it. And it's more comfortable to be down there and to you know to do things nicely. Um, but num- the number two benefit, which is probably the bigger one of standing desks in this area, is that if you routinely raise and lower the desk, you have to have a certain amount of good cable management. Otherwise, stuff will be pulled off the desk every time you <laughs> lift it up. Uh, so it kind of forces you to keep things a little bit tidier. Um, and, and, you know, just because ha- your desk has to be a little bit more mobile, and and you have to be able to move it knowing that cables are going to get pulled, and then, you know, there will be some slack out of them when, when the desk goes down, and so you kind of have to accommodate for that in your arrangement. Um, that being said, my methods of cable management are pretty simplistic. I'm actually kind of surprised that Nick somehow managed to find a way to spend 200 pounds on cable management stuff, which... <laughs> what is it like a thousand dollars? Like I don't even know how you do that. (laughs) Like it, I mean, I guess there's probably like some, you know, cool boutique specialty stuff that's made of walnut and hand carved or something. But my management strategy has usually been based on zip ties or Velcro cable ties or both. And there's not much that you have to do that costs a lot of money in this area. Uh, one of the best things you can do if if you want to set more poundage on fire is, uh, to get new cables that are exactly the length they need to be and no more uh, because cable excess length is one of the biggest causes of desk cable clutter uh, and if you can minimize that excess length you know method number one is just take a zip tie or cable tie and just bound up the excess length somewhere along the along the cable where you can t- kind of tuck it away and hide it in a useful way but Method number two, which sets more money on fire, is to buy new cables that are shorter, <laughs> if you can, for you know, for whatever devices that uh, you can do that for. Um, also, there's obviously the strategy of if you can consolidate your devices themselves, like all your peripherals, if you can get away with one thing to do the job of what you currently have four different things with four different power bricks to do. Like, by all means, do that. But obviously, that's that's not always possible. Um, the other thing I, w- I would say is one of the standing desk advantages of keeping things tidy is that when you're designing a cable setup for a standing desk, one of the easiest places to put something, whether it's a cable or a small peripheral, like an external hard drive or something, is the underside of the desk, which I feel like is an area, like uh, literally just attaching things to the underside of your desk is an area of cable management real estate that most people underuse. So I would strongly suggest consider that when you're arranging things. So for instance, on the underside of my desk, I have two external hard drives plugged into a USB hub. All of those things are adhered to the underside of my desk with command strips, (laughs) the Velcro ones. (laughs) So they, they hold a ton of weight, but because they're Velcro and in two pieces, you can like take the thing off and then you can do the command, you know, slow pull to detach the top strip thing so you don't have to, like, reach behind a hard drive and try to pull a little tiny tab. Like, you can take the device off. Then you have full reach on the tabs. So it makes command strips way better to do the two-piece Velcro ones. And they hold a bunch of weight. So, like, you know, I stick two of those on the bottom of a uh, hard drive or something, stick on the bottom of my desk. It's fine. I have a speaker amp stuck to the bottom of my desk that way it's not a large speaker amp, mind. You. It was one of those like $50 SMSL things, but the speakers on my desk are powered by an amp that is a uh, command strip to the bottom of my desk. <laughs> like oh, my it word. works <laughs> and it's, they're very secure. And you know, they, cause they, you know, they're made to hold like five pounds each. I put two of them on something that weighs one pound. And you know, I have a lot of, a lot of leeway there. Um, but anyway, so use the underside of your desk as well. Undersides of desks usually also provide some amount of, you know, framing, some kind of bars that go across it or somewhere. And those are also good things to attach cables to or to run cables along. Uh, again, zip ties and cable ties are your friend here. Um, but ultimately the end game of my desk setups, my, my cable management setups, is I think a very common story. Where I, I'll get it set up really nicely and it'll be really nice for like two months and then I'll add something or a cable will break or I'll have to rearrange something. And then I, okay, well now I just, I'll just plug this in real fast and I'll get back to my job. Um, and then a few months later, I'll add something else. I'll just plug this in real fast and get back to my job. And eventually there's so much crap built up. And I can't move my iMac anymore because some cable is being pulled too taut and I I can't tilt the screen to the right, you know, tilt level anymore. <laughs> and at some point I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna start all this over again. Clip all the zip ties, take all the cables out, unplug everything, <laughs> do it all over mm-hmm. again. And that's just that's just the cycle of this kind of thing. And I don't I I think the reality of your desk setup is that it changes over time that's the nature of technology it's the nature of computers the nature of being a nerd so you can have the best setup in the world but in a year you're gonna want to redo it and instead of trying to fight that or feel bad about it just accept like yeah this is just what's gonna happen you're gonna make it really nice and in a year it's not gonna be nice anymore it's gonna be full of you know Knots and dust and bees and God knows what else, and then you're gonna have to just redo the whole thing again, and that's that's just how it goes. And go into it with that in mind, and you'll feel a lot better when it happens.
2: I think I, I don't know if I spent two hundred pounds. I don't know what a pound is. Is that the same as a quid? I kid, I kid. um <laughs> But I did spend a lot of money on cables when I got my Mac Pro set up, and it's just for the reason Marco said, not because I needed cables, although I did need a few of them, but mostly because. Now I had new distances to things because my Mac wasn't going to be underneath uh, the table. And I had, you know, the new monitor and different things were connected to hubs and they weren't before. And so I got cables that they're not exactly the right length but they're in the ballpark. So I don't have any excess that I have to side. And also none of them are pulled so taut that they are visible. Because again, that's my main concern about hiding things. I need mine to sort of loop down out of sight and then come back back up out of sight and go into the computer. And so they can't be too sharp, but they also can't be too long. And that's
1: why I got all these new cables. Thanks to our sponsors this week, Flat File, HelloFresh, and Purple. And thank you to our members who support us directly. You can join at atp.fm/slash join. We will talk to you all next week.
2: Now the show is over. They
1: didn't even mean to begin because it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him because it was accidental. Acc-
2: It was accidental. Accidental. And you can find the show notes at ATP.FM. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at C A S
1: E Y L I S S. So that's Casey Liss, M A R C O A R M E N T Marco Armen. S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A-C-R-A-C-U-S-A-C-U-S-A. It's
0: accidental. Accidental. They didn't mean to. Accidental. Accidental. Tech podcast so long.
1: A few weeks ago, I said very, very quickly as part as like a -A 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 lead into some other segment that I had thoroughly ruined my Peak Design Everyday Backpack. And I was about to tell you how it went, and then we just we got sidetracked and started talking about other stuff, and just never came back to it. Yeah, right. And and people have been asking literally every week since then. So what happened to the backpack? (laughs) (laughs) Um. So here here's the quick story on that. I was going to one of my trips you know, to go run some errands off the island. So I had my backpack full of stuff and I had like my dog and I had like a a bottle of water for the dog and I had a bottle of water for me and I wanted to carry a coffee as well because part of these errands involves a long drive. And I put my coffee, as I always do, in my Zojirushi travel mug. Zojirushi makes awesome travel mugs for coffee. They come in all different sizes and they they have these flip-top lids That you can close and you can lock. Normally, I would have used the external uh, cup holder on my backpack. But in this case, the two external cup holders, or external bottle holders rather, on the backpack, the ones on each side, were already occupied. I decided to put the coffee in the top compartment of the backpack. And it was kind of padded with like a jacket on one side so it couldn't tip over. And it turned out I, this one time, had forgotten to lock the lid. Oh, no. And this one time, as part of the process of getting myself and my dog and my st- all the stuff I was carrying uh, between the house and the walk and the boat and the car, at so- somehow the lid, I-, I-, I, had- I had forgotten to lock the lid. And somehow in the shuffling around, something had pushed the button and it had popped open. And so my, my full thing of coffee in my Zojirushi travel mug had the opportunity to spill not even all of it, but maybe a quarter of itself into the backpack. It turns out that when you spill a quarter cup of coffee inside a backpack, it goes everywhere. You'd be shocked how much of the bag... In how many different surfaces and different materials and everything, how much of it gets surprisingly wet from a quarter cup of coffee? The problem that I have with this kind of thing, you know I love coffee. I love lots of food and drink type things. But after I have cooked and eaten a meal, I don't want to be like going to bed at 10 o'clock that night and still be smelling the food that i cooked four hours ago like i I want this i want the smell of food to be there while i'm cooking and eating and then ideally to instantly disappear and similarly as much as i love coffee i don't want my entire backpack to smell like coffee all the time so i have this backpack that's full of coffee (laughs) somehow with a quarter cup but trust me it went everywhere (laughs) uh and I got. I'm like every time I open it up, you know, I I tried, you know, some wet paper towels and wet cloths here and there to try to like blot it and wipe some of the surfaces down. But like, it's really in the fabric. Every time I would open it up, it just smelled like now old stale coffee, <laughs> <Delicious>. <laughs> and everything in it smelled like coffee. And I, I had to like take everything out and wash every like you know wipe or wash everything that was in it. But still, the whole bag just reeked of coffee, and no, no amount of cleaning I was doing to it was helping. I even like brought it into the sink and I just started running water over parts. Cause I'm like, it's already, I already don't want to use this bag anymore. So if I happen to ruin the structure of it in some way, Oh, well, I've already ruined it. And so I, then I started washing it like crazy. I started like, you know, soaking parts, um, you know, really like hosing it down. I left it outside on the deck through three different rain and wind storms, <laughs> oh hoping gosh. that it would like air out and really get, and nothing I did. Could make this backpack stop smelling like stale, rotten coffee. They've actually since revised the bag. Um, they they've made a version two of it about a year ago, and Tiff has one of the version two ones. And there are certain things about the version two that are significantly better, but there are also certain things about it that I actually like a lot less than the version one. And so I'm like, I I want I just I just want to replace this backpack, but I don't want the current ones. I, I kind of want the old one. And fortunately, on Amazon, they seem to be unloading old stock of the old bags for discounted prices on Amazon. So I'm like, you know what? This is available right now. It's not that much money. Let me just buy a spare. Sure enough, the spare comes. I get it. It's fine. It's perfect. I'm happy with it. I now am keeping the old stale coffee one as the spare. And that's it. I, I There is no ending to the story. This is not a very interesting story. I was totally unable to remove the coffee smell from this backpack so i must caution you all out there don't carry liquids inside your peak design everyday backpacks <laughs> unless you are really really sure that you have locked the lid on said liquids but to be extra sure just keep it in the outside pocket and that's uh, you know the, the, the bottle holder pockets they're, they're there for a reason that's
2: probably uh, a better place to put liquids i thought the moral of the story was the coffee ruins everything
0: you took the words right out of my mouth, John Syracusa. Well done, sir. Well done.
2: <laughs> Stale coffee reminds me when I used to visit my mom's office. That's what it smelled like. Like, you know, coffee and like the little, uh, what do you call them? The hot craft, hot plates things. Yeah, well, I mean, that's really bad coffee. Like,
1: at least this was good coffee, but
2: even good coffee,
1: once it has soaked into your backpack fabric, becomes bad coffee pretty quickly.
2: Well, what I'm saying, like, this is the 80s, and there was no no Keurig machines or anything like that. It was all there was, was the little whatever coffee things for the office, but it smelled but like you, old are, are, you, are
1: you using Keurig machines as, as a good thing here? You're, you're saying? No,
2: I'm saying, well, <laughs> certainly they make better coffee than these things did, because this was like the, the glass, like you get in a hotel room, a glass pot that you put on a hot thing with a little drip, and the coffee would just sit in there, and sometimes it would sit in there and get burned or whatever and just the the office permanently smelled like the worst of like three day old burned coffee in one of those things it was just a permanent smell i can imagine your backpack smelling worse than that
1: yeah like because again the coffee was great uh, when it was fresh and when it was not in the fabric of a backpack that i've been using constantly for four years whatever <laughs> but yeah when, when they combine when you have an unwelcome food or drink smell uh, it, it, at, at, in a place or at times when you don't want to be smelling that, it becomes significantly less pleasant. So That's The
2: only thing that could be possibly worse, well, two things could be worse than that. One, and I know, I know this from recent experience at my current job, one of the people who sat like a uh, diagonal to me, uh, at one of my desks that I had, what did he had? He had a, a bottle of bourbon, I think, like a glass bottle of bourbon that was used for sort of after work activities. And it was stored (laughs) under his desk and somehow got kicked into a metal thing and cracked and leaked bourbon all over the floor. And I can tell you that is a strong smell that is difficult to get rid of. But the good thing alcohol goes going for it it is volatile and a lot of it does dissipate, right? Uh, But the real worst one is – I think this was my younger brother – spilled milk in the back of our station wagon once oh Oh, that's just get a new car into the carpet (laughs) and you're like you try to blot it up but whatever but then you come back in the next day after it's been in the hot sun rotten milk soaked into car like you know not just the carpeting that you can take out but like soaked into like the the stuff that is actually stuck to the you know metal panel. boy that smell i'll remember that forever and it never really goes (laughs) away the goat the ghost of rotten milk haunted that station wagon forever yeah, that's you. You're never getting rid of that smell. You can't just buy a new uh, Volvo station wagon. Well, I guess you can, but it seems a shame.
0: All right, titles.
2: Made of walnut. I got nothing. That's about down in the zeros.
1: Yeah, I said it, but it's not bad. Hmm. Walnut has ruined all cool products.
2: <laughs> the the nut or the wood. <laughs>
1: The, well the nut ruins everything it's in the nuts yeah. I, i'd rather have a, a backpack full of coffee than like a brownie that has one walnut somewhere in it but, uh, uh, but yeah.
2: i have a i have a walnut acclimation story actually oh yeah <laughs> what does that even mean i was with i'm with you mostly on walnuts The the worst nut right it looks like brains it tastes bad <laughs> i don't want them in my brownies <laughs> like the whole the whole nine yards on you know anti-walnut right but one of my favorite ice cream flavors, Ben and Jerry's New York Super Fudge Chunk, has come with walnuts in it forever for the history of the flavor. And I love the flavor, and I would get it, and I would eat around the walnuts carefully, like I'd extract them and put them aside and say so I'm not eating that. and I eat everything else. And how long has that flavor been around? Decades. I've been eating New York Super Fudge Chunk for. I think I had some like three days ago. Like. I eat eat a lot of ice cream, first of all. And second of all, I eat a lot of New York Superfudge Chunk. And over the decades, I slowly stopped extracting the walnuts and started just eating them. I don't like them. Walnuts are still bad. (laughs) I don't want them in my brownies. I would like it better if they weren't in this, but now I can eat them without, you know, having a feeling of revulsion. I don't like them, but I don't hate them as much as i used to at least in this one context so i feel like i've i've turned a corner on walnut and i like now it is it is not worth the effort to extract them i merely just the way i get rid of them now is i eat them <laughs> glowing endorsement <laughs> yeah right i mean that, what can you do with walnuts the other thing is you know when i grew up we had one of the traditional courses in italian american meals is the nut course before dessert and they would bring out a big thing of nuts in the shelves, and half the fun of that is just getting to play with the nutcrackers and crack open the things or whatever. And walnuts are the biggest and the most fun to crack. But then you got a bunch of walnuts, and who the hell wants those? So I just give them to like my uncle or grandfather, and they
0: would <laughs> eat them. But. That, I think we talked about this a year or two back. Um, so my uh, my mom's parents, my grandparents, are Italian American, and I grew up with similar, although perhaps less devout traditions as you, John. And uh, one of the things that was always uh, on display and out for consumption when i visited them was pistachios and the thought technology of using a previously cracked pistachio shell as a screwdriver or lever to open a nigh uncrackable pistachio shell was something i just discovered like a handful of years ago That
2: doesn't have to be previously cracked you just need it just need a little you just need a pac-man mouth and you can use that yeah. Otherwise you got a chicken egg situation. How do you get the first one open?
0: Right, 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 right. But uh anyway, that that was thought technology that just blew my mind and and it has changed my life for the better ever since.
1: I I regret to admit that I've actually I've actually switched to like shelled what? Yeah. Pistachios. What is it? Is it unshell? Is it shellless what what is the ter- <laughs> the ones that don't have shells on yes them the ones that eating. do not come with shells i've switched to those for pistachios cuz oh, see
0: but that takes away to some of the tea ceremony
1: i know i i i was on your side for many years but I, I have since switched but now
2: you just you crave pistachios so much you can't be slowed down by the shells
1: <laughs> yeah i just kind of <laughs> just, just need to just shovel them in pour them into my face now
2: it's <laughs> really it's really putting a damper on your nut-based calorie intake yeah right <laughs>
1: It's best not to look at how many calories are in nuts. No, don't. That's what I'm saying.
2: <laughs> it's or the much... price. God, pistachios are so expensive.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, I, I've been I, I've found a nice uh, solution to that. There's what, what's the the brand that comes in the green bag, like the Good or whatever. It's like some generic brand yeah,
2: name. Yeah, whatever national advertising brand.
1: Yeah, yeah, but they have they have now these little these like those like foil tube packs that mm-hmm. you buy a box that has like eight of them in there, and so you it, it's preportioned. So oh yeah, the wonderful brand. Thank you Steve Mull in the chat. Um yeah, the wonderful brand. Uh and yeah, so you can you can like just have these little like 120 calorie packs or like these little like
2: foil tubes. It's like three pistachios.
1: It's not that many, <laughs> but you can but like it's nice that you could just grab one of those and then you you kind of you know how many calories you're eating in 3 seconds mm-hmm. instead <laughs> of just like like and so and you can basically pour it into your face in like two or three pours and then you're done and you can move on.
2: Yeah. My my dad, uh, he loves pistachios. He's also allergic to them. And it's just like, I mean, it could be right out of The Simpsons. Like, he, you know, it's like, but you're allergic to these. He's like, but I love them. So he'd just sit there and eat them and just get all puffy and just, <laughs> it's like, you can't stop. It's like, it's worth it, I guess. I don't, it's not, it hasn't killed them yet, but it's not, you know. Pistachio ice cream is a pretty pretty good way because you, you know, there's not a lot of pistachios in pistachio ice cream but there's enough that you feel like you're getting something. Of course the rest of it is ice cream which isn't great either.
1: Yeah, from a calorie point of view, yeah, although pistachio <laughs> ice cream is very good. But so hard it seems like
2: it's very difficult to do well. Yeah, Ben and Jerry's has the best pistachio ice cream. No contest. Häagen-Dazs uh, makes the pistachios too small. And any ice cream that is green forget it. Yeah, the ones that are like neon green <laughs> to try to
1: indicate pistachio-ness. Yeah,
2: no, that's not, that's still fake, whatever, yeah. Ben & Jerry's Pistachio, what is it called? Pistachio, Pistachio, I forget yeah. the flavor name. Yeah they, yeah, they are the only good store-bought pistachio ice cream I've ever found. In conclusion, walnuts are dicks. <laughs> and coffee ruins everything. Spill, right, a walnuts, bye everybody. spill a walnuts in your backpack and it's not going to ruin it. Yeah, that's right.
1: Well, it depends. I mean, they're really bad. Just pick, the, pick those walnuts right out of there. Yeah. Anyway, bye everybody. Thank you for listening. <laughs>
0: Happy Thanksgiving.
2: Yeah, Happy Thanksgiving. That's
1: right. Don't
0: put walnuts
2: in your stuffing. Use pine nuts instead. They're better.
1: Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's true for sure. And also, since many people are not traveling for Thanksgiving, ourselves included. uh,
2: All people are not traveling, right? Everybody who's listening?
1: Yeah, please don't travel. But yeah, for all of us who are not traveling, the great thing about this is that you can edit what you have to be only the stuff you like. So, like, normally, if you go to Thanksgiving at, you know, your parents' place or whatever, and, you know, there's always, like, first of all, there's always the turkey, and turkey is usually terrible. Um,
0: Agreed. Disagree. Oh, no, Marco is 100% right.
1: There are ways to make it decent, but most people don't or can't do those. (laughs) So, the result is turkey is usually pretty bad. Um, But you don't have to have turkey, or you don't have to have a whole turkey. Like, we decided for our little, you know, Thanksgiving here for our little family here at the beach, we decided we're not going to have a whole turkey because there's only three of us. But be bought a turkey breast because you can buy just the breast and you can roast just that and brine it and everything and you can do all sorts of fun stuff and it's way smaller. You got the, wor- you got the worst
2: part of the turkey. Congratulations.
1: It's way <laughs> smaller and way easier to deal with or you can, if you if you like the dark meat, you can buy a couple legs or whatever. Like you, you can mm-hmm. buy just parts of the turkey or you can cook any other type of meat or no meat. You can have Thanksgiving that's all side dishes. You can have Thanksgiving that's a steak or a roast or anything else. Like Stop. it doesn't have to be. Steak Thanksgiving.
0: Oh, I'm on board. I'm, uh, Marco, I'm coming to that Thanksgiving next year. Yeah,
1: like take this opportunity that you are forced by major world events to have a different kind of Thanksgiving that is both smaller and much more within your control. Take the opportunity to make your thanksgiving that like pistachio ice cream for dinner yes you can, if that's what you want you can have thanksgiving that is only the things that you want and no other things you can control the ratios if you want to have a thanksgiving dinner that's three quarters stuffing you can do that like that's <laughs> it's up to you you can you have full control over what you make so you know take this opportunity that you're forced to do something different and actually do something that you might enjoy a little bit better. Or at least at least the food part can be better while you talk to your family over FaceTime and you look at their dry turkey and you're like, ha-ha, I don't have to eat that.
2: Alternately, you could take this Thanksgiving uh, away from family as an opportunity to practice making turkey so you don't ruin it because turkey is good. Practice in a judgment-free environment. <laughs> it's not that hard to make <laughs> turkey, people. Just, just, oh, forget it. All right, anyway, I love right. turkey. I'm going to have turkey this Thanksgiving. It's possible to make it without ruining it. Yeah, I mean it's it's possible. It's just very unlikely. Eh, I don't know. I think people I think people just cook it at too high a temperature. Lots of meat things. Like if your problem is that you keep screwing it up, it's probably because you're trying to cook it at a too high a temperature. Especially for something big, if you just cook it low and slow. Then your only real problem is like the outside can be crappy. But then you just do high heat at the beginning or end, and you solve that problem. And it's not that hard. You, you know, instant read thermometer is your friend.
1: Well, but yeah, yes, but a thermometer tells you. When the inside is done, when the outside is totally dried out and burnt, doesn't, it doesn't prevent it. <laughs> well, well,
2: the outside won't be totally dried out and burnt if you cook it at a lower temperature.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very hard to cook a very large piece of meat that you are leaving whole in its whole form. Like, Practice. it's Practice very hard sense. to do that in a reasonable amount of time in a regular household oven. Like, if, you, if, you, if you're going to, like, you know, smoke it and smoke the turkey over, like, 12 hours... There are ways to do it. Like There are lots of low and slow cooking methods, but most people either aren't set up for them or don't have the skill for them, and it, the result is usually not great. Enjoy your Thanksgiving, whatever it is, and uh, if you want to make something better than turkey, feel free. Ham's good. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, ham's more of a Christmas thing, though, I think. But Or, e- or Easter. I've had, I've had good spiral hams more often than I've had good turkey
2: oh preach
1: <laughs> and, and i should clarify i don't like ham that much like i actually don't like ham in general like i'll eat it but i'd rather eat something else
2: you should try the boris ham
1: they may they sell like the big ones
2: yeah non-spiral cubs. just one big hunk of ham but it's it's already cooked you just heat it up it's so much better than that spiral slice stuff that you're getting i guarantee can you still put the big pineapple rings on the side <laughs> I mean, it's you know like the spiral slice. It's already cooked, so you're just heating it through, and you could do whatever you want with it. But I would, if you just get the boar's head ham, you can get like a small one that's like small enough for like one meal for a family. Get, I mean, it's very expensive, but try it and then take buy a spiral slice one too, and then put them side by side and and A B test against them. It's like it's no contest. Yeah,
1: <laughs> well, and I would say too, like on the on the pricing side, like if you're buying so much ham that the price of it is a problem. I would venture to say you're probably eating too much
2: ham. <laughs> well, if you have a big family dinner and you're going to buy a ham that's going to feed the whole family, you do have to buy a, a bigger ham. But uh, but yeah, we made the mistake of we, – we've been doing head hams for – usually for Easter for a long time. We're like, oh, we couldn't find that. We bought a different brand, and it was so disappointing. I was like, oh, my God. We can never we can never buy this non head ham ever
0: Borset, again. head stuff is phenomenally expensive but is phenomenally tasty. Yeah. Like I could sit – I, I know you two are going to judge me for this, but I swear to you, I could sit and eat a pound of Boar's Head White American like it was nothing. We know you and your White American cheese. We know all about.
2: It. No, we've actually we've been we've had the
1: uh, the Boar's Head Yellow American is our primary cheese of our household because like the the little grocery store here didn't have good like craft single kind of cheese like the pre wrapped singles for Adam all summer like to make grilled cheeses for for our kid, and so we just we've switched the entire family over to just using Boar's Head Yellow Deli American for pretty much everything. And it's fantastic.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Aaron's entire family is, like, very much on the anti-American cheese bandwagon. And they're all wrong. They're all wrong. Uh, The only
2: thing I'll say about the Boar's Head uh, cheese is for grilled cheese, full-fat Kraft is still... uh, Real cheese, not the singles, not the cheese food. Kraft (laughs) Kraft American actual cheese is still better than grilled cheese sandwiches.
0: That's probably true. I'd buy that.
2: I might not have a, Have a, I, know, I know i had boar i grew up with boar's head cheese i know exactly what you're talking about i ate tons of it i still like it but for a grilled cheese sandwich straight up american do the full fat whole milk real uh american craft cheese versus the boar's head and just do make make two sandwiches and see which one you like better i think the craft one is better because that is its element the artificial craft american cheese and the grilled cheese sandwich <laughs> That's true.
1: That's fair. I will also argue once again that American cheese is the best cheese for hamburgers. Bye live listeners. Thank you for listening and we will talk to you next week.
0: Oh my God, we were still live? Yeah. Oh God.